Welcome to episode 572 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. Right, then welcome along to episode 572 of I Am Talk with Coach John Newsom, Bevan James Oz. Yeah, you're in the country? No, I'm oh, got one day to go. Leaving tomorrow night. Oh. What time do you leave? Uh, in the evening. I think, yeah, in the evening, about seven or eight o'clock, something like that. Flying out of Christchurch, seven o'clock. Arrive at Auckland, 8.20. Fly out of Auckland, 9.50. That's a good time to leave. Yeah, arrive at LA, three o'clock in the afternoon. But hopefully I've been. LA's about 11 hours, isn't it? Say I'm a little lap here. Twelve hours and ten minutes. Okay. Only got two hours in LA, Bevan. Jeez, that's not much. That's time, not is it? a lot of time. Gotta check your emails. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, no. I just gotta get my bloody gear and then fly Los Angeles to Munich. Another eleven and a half hours. Some smuck with a mullet will hopefully pick me up from the airport <laughs> and we'll be good. Am I picking up? I think you are. Oh, yeah. Good to know. I'll go through that with Joe. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely with Joe. Yeah. He's saying Joe's got a mullet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you say my my wife's a smuck with a mullet. Smuck with a mullet. John, uh, we, on the way home, we're doing that 16 hour flight. Oh, via we're going, Dubai we're going or something? Dubai to Auckland. Oh, you laid your laptop? Uh, I, I think, think, think you're going, you're okay down that way. Yeah. Yeah, 16 hours. What's the longest you've ever done on a plane? Uh, I think about 13. Yeah. yeah, well, I'm now the winner. Well, you'll, you'll be fine up there in first class. <laughs> no, we, we, one of our, one of our, because we use points for the whole trip. Mm-hmm. So one of them, we are doing business. Mm-hmm. One of them, one of the, one of the aspects we're doing business, and uh, yeah, there's, I'm really looking forward to it. Have you ever done business on Emirates? No, but I'd imagine it's pretty good. Yeah, looking forward to it. Jonbo, uh, I'm talking is proudly brought to you by Athlinks.com. Social networking for endurance athletes. Extreme endurance. Your lactic buffer. And our patrons. And let's name a few Jonbo. Joseph the Star Walensky. And then we've got Tim Pedal to the Metal Ford. Charles the Shadow Meehan. It's rock and roll and sweet show. It's the last of our kind of uh, while we're away shows. So we've got a few interviews again. And we've got an interview with a lady called Alicia DeFabio. And she wrote a book called Woman Who Try. Uh, and I interviewed her actually probably about two months ago now. <laughs> but yeah. we're putting interview in today. And then we've got another interview, which I did on my other podcast recently with a guy called Jack Lessig. Uh, he's a top sports psychologist. And he actually was the past president of the Association for Applied Sports Psychology. So he's a mm-hmm. pretty high up there and he's been doing it for 30 years so he's a guy who knows his stuff now admittedly I'm doing this interview after I've done the show so I can't really talk about it but he sounds like he's a guy who's pretty good at what he does so it'll be really interesting to actually talk to him about sports psychology and then we're going to do one of our old interviews again John a blast in the past with Gordo so we've been replaying some of our legends interviews but one of the requests we had when we said what who do you want to hear from again or re- what episodes do you want replayed and Gordo's name came up quite a few times so we're dragging one out from the archives uh, to hear Gordo who's not really involved in the sport very much at all any longer but we know that when he was you guys loved his insight so we'll be re- playing one of those interviews okay Jombo so uh, there's no real gossip we're going to talk about before the show no it's so one thing just to be aware guys next from next week we'll be having multiple shows coming out so we'll be starting our camp this weekend on we're assembling on Friday we're writing the rote course on Saturday and then we're doing a bunch of other things we're heading over to Reading. we're writing the whole rote course 
Just one lap. Oh, good for that. 90, 90 Ks. <laughs> uh, and then we will be heading over to Regensburg, and then we'll be back into Nuremberg, which is our main base from Wednesday. So we may release, release a show just a little bit later than normal next week. We'll see how we're getting on. But from next week, there'll probably be a show Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Sunday being race day. And we'll uh, be aiming to get all the top pros in Roach and mm. all that, you know, all that content, like a Kona coverage, we'll like, get all the best people on. Like Kona coverage, but also because we're going to have a camp with us, we'll be able to get some really good insight into a wide variety of age groupers that are racing. You know, I'm going to be racing. We've got a couple of other guys that are reasonably speedy. We've got some middle of the packers and we've got, you know, one or two people that are going to be uh, – going to be pushing the, the boundaries in terms of making sure they get in under the cutoffs. So we'll be able to cut, do the full rote experience. Bevan will be over there on the sidelines. He'll have a bunch of other people with him. Old um, On race day? Yeah, old tri-rating, oh, yeah. Torsten from tri-rating. Yeah, he's going to be a, my man in the stand. Yeah, man in the stand. And uh, we'll see if we can get any live coverage from me on the race. And one thing that we will, I'm really keen for you and Joe to be doing as well, is we won't have those same restrictions that we have on Kona. So I'm kind of hoping you guys will be taking pictures on the day of the team and oh, putting yeah. them on our Facebook page. So we'll try to do as much coverage in the days sure leading in. Ah, we fine. We'll, we'll have media centre. Of course, of course, we'll media. We'll be we'll be number one media there. Yeah, yeah. Who cares about their TV coverage? So check out rote coverage from next week. Okay, guys, and, and as John said, they'll be coming out kind of every day. So check that out and spread the word because people love this stuff. Okay, John, our first interview is with uh, Alicia Di Fabio, and she wrote a book called Woman Who Try. Okay, team, I'm very happy to have on the show today a lady by the name of Alicia Di Fabio, like fabulous, she told me just before, and uh, she's just released a book called Women Who Try, and uh, we'll be talking lots about this in the interview today, but first of all, maybe just tell me a little bit about your background. Sure. Well, I um, never was much of an athlete, ever. Um, I kind of goofed around. I ran cross country when I was young. I kind of stunk at it, but it was the only thing I could do, uh, because I was really pretty uncoordinated. Um, and then decades went by and I had four kids and I was in my forties. Um, I got my doctorate degree in clinical psychology. Um, I was working and then I ended up staying home with my family. Um, and then all of a sudden, this triathlon club kind of surfaces in my town for all women. And it started out as four curious, tri-curious women. And suddenly more joined and more joined and more joined. Next thing you know, in four years, 940 women were in this uh, all-female tri-club. In, in so your town? Very, in my town, yeah. Now, the majority were my town, but there were like surrounding towns were also in there. And I live in a small town. I'm not in a big Mecca like um, Colorado or uh, New York or D.C. where you see a lot of endurance athletes. Um, so I, the psychologist in me got very curious about why these 40, 50, 60, 70-year-old women who the large majority of them had never been – athletes themselves. A lot of them were uh, self-proclaimed couch potatoes. And um, they had kids of all ages, little kids, teenagers, and they were flocking to the sport. And I was like, 
amazed and a little appalled. I was like, what are you people doing? <laughs> Crazy, <laughs> nutty people. Um, I was like knee deep in kitty palooza, you know, I just mm. couldn't even understand why somebody would want to do all these things. Um, so the psychologist in me was very curious and the writer in me thought it would make a good story. And so then that's kind of what led me to write the book. But I realized in order to really understand these women, I probably had to become one of them. And so that is <laughs> how I jumped into a lake and taught myself to swim and started running, which I thought I hated, but ended up realizing I really loved it and um, got on a bike and for the first time since I was like 20 years old and and that's kind of how it all happened. <laughs> so, so, so first of all, um, obviously you've done, you know, you know the story of this world that's been built that seems pretty, pretty impressive. Um, how did it all start out? Just the building of the triathlon world within your community? Yeah, it was, it was interesting. So Colleen Fawcett and Lydia Del Rosso are two of the four founding members of my tri club, just regular moms, you know, they were, one was in her thirties, one was in her forties. Um, and Colleen had run a lot, you know, run some half marathons and then some marathons. And she, as she says it, she got bored and, um, cause she has a lot of energy and started doing tries. I don't know how she heard about triathlons. I didn't even know what a triathlon really was. Um, but somehow I guess because she was in the endurance, uh, sports community, she had heard of these new, they were, it was kind of new and emerging around here. This was in, uh, the early two thousands, I think. Um, and then another friend was just kind of like a workout junkie, uh, Lydia Del Rosso. She was just a workout junkie, and she loved to try new things. Um, and so she kind of got started in two, and she liked the whole idea of doing a triathlon for charity and raising money for charity because mm -hmm. she was a very charitable person. So these, uh, there were two other women as well, Michelle Powell and um, Maureen Brigham, and they just kind of happenstance got together, and they said, hey, let's join a triathlon. They didn't even know what they were doing. Um so they just kind of put it together. They had a lot of passion and they held a kickoff meeting and I think like 80 women came oh, wow. from the town. Yeah. Um, most of them, I think one or two had done triathlons before, but n no one else had any triathlon experience. And then they all trained together and worked out and figured it out and they did a sprint triathlon in Philadelphia. So I suppose, like, it's, it's, we live in a very interesting time in sport. Like, I, I, in my local area, one thing we've noticed in this last kind of period of, of humanity <laughs> uh, is that the sense of community activities are fading because people are time poor. Um, and that, yeah. uh, like, I think of my own local area, um, back in the 80s, everyone was kind of in a club. Uh, and the deal yeah. with the club was that, you know, you kind of, you take from the club, you give to the club. So, and that was generally time. So you'd get, you know, take and give for the club and, and that was for the greater good of the community. And whereas in these times where, you know, mum and dads are both working, we're all very time poor, that sense of clubs have really faded, at least in my own community, you know. Okay. Um, you know, like the idea of getting 900 people in Christchurch to join, or 900 females to join a, a running club would be, or to join a triathlon club would seem almost more well, impossible, really. So... To the fact that they've achieved so much, what have been some of the things that they did well that to really capture this thing they've created? Yeah, I think there was what you were talking about community. There was this huge sense of community and being involved with something that was kind of bigger 
than you. So uh, while we have some really competitive women in the club, we have some women who have done full Ironmans. Um, we had almost 100 women do uh, uh, Ironman 70.3 um, just this past summer. Um, so, and we have some people that really, you know, they stand on the podium for their age group. Uh, but the large majority are doing it to um, help support each other. Um, they, they bring, you know, moms and sisters and friends um, into the sport. They they do it for friendship. I mean, the friendships that have been created through this triathlon club are, are absolutely amazing. And I think this is a time, I, I mean, I can only speak as a woman because I am a woman, mm. but I think that there, there a time in a woman's life, you know, when she's young and she's going out and friends and friends are really important in high school, um, college, and then you kind of get hunkered down in your career and your family and, you know, you start to kind of feel like, you just want to connect with people, you know, mm. you might have your work friends, you might have your neighbors, you might have your kids, friends, moms, but you don't necessarily always have people that you connect with because you share this common bond, this common interest. So I think it was a lot more about hanging out, <laughs> drinking wine and yeah. after the race and, uh, you know, just like being there for each other, bonding on these long runs, um, uh, a lot of support. I mean, just a lot of uh, people who didn't think they could do it and you kind of buddy up with someone and that person, you know, becomes your biggest cheerleader and um, the accountability. So I, I think there was a lot of that. And uh, our tri club in particular does a lot of fundraising and philanthropy. So I think that was a way to connect this this sport with um, like a greater good. Mm. And so we, we we drew a lot of people in w with that. We've raised a tremendous amount of money for charities and, you know, have um, done a lot of awareness campaigns with different issues. So, you know, that, that's been meaningful for people as well. So you said, you know, you, you discovered this world was being built. You were kind of attracted to it for some, you know, just because it was going so successfully. You realized you wanted to kind of see what this was all about. Being the psychologist, going into it, did you have preconceived ideas of what you thought you would see? And, yes, and, and, I did. Okay. And so tell me about that. Yeah, I thought I would see a bunch of super type A, very obsessive compulsive people that maybe struggled with balance and, um, you know, really like cutthroat and wanting to cross that finish line and get their best time. And, um, and what I found was people were very balanced. Um, people were uh, extremely kind, compassionate, and yes, they wanted to do their best, and yes, they set goals, but it wasn't at the expense of other people. I mean, we have um, some really competitive uh, triathletes, age group triathletes in our club, and I remember, and they, they can stand on the podium, you know, they were at a race uh, down at the beach and one of our members panicked in the ocean swim. And those two women kind of forfeited their race, basically went back and swam with her and, um, wow. and, and got, got her to shore. And, you know, that was more meaningful to them than trying to get their best time. You know, I mean, uh, another race can always come, but the opportunity to help someone, you know, not necessarily so, but, um, yeah, so I, I think I really found that um, it, there was, a at least in this tri-club, with recreational triathletes, there was a lot of variety, variety, and I thought it was going to be like all these like super athletic, you know, size two 
women and uh, young and knows, you know, the mean age in our club is 44. The oldest member is, I think, 73. Wow. The youngest is 13. Um, they're all sh uh, shapes, sizes, fitness levels, backgrounds. Um, so I was very surprised by that. I was just, I was just very surprised by that diversity um, with personality and, and, and shape and, you know, uh, prior fitness experience. It was just, it was neat to see, you know, it was kind of like the everyday woman doing amazing things. What about the fact that it's not, it's a female only club? What does it help it to achieve that maybe a, you know, a mixed club would do or and what does it miss out on is maybe another question to yes. explore. They, uh, you know, the, the founders, uh, of which I was not one, because I was like steering clear of all that at the beginning. <laughs> I was like, well, please do not drag me into that mess. I can barely, you know, get four hours of uninterrupted sleep, you know, at that point, like so little. But um, but they they really, you know, they, they debated a little bit, you know, do we want to make this a co-ed club? Do we not? Um, I think they're they were interested in getting the woman who might normally be very intimidated by uh, a, a co-ed club. And this is kind of unfair to guys, but I think there's a, you know, sometimes women who um, maybe, you know, haven't lost their baby weight or, uh, you know, are embarrassed about themselves in, in a bathing suit or something, going to, a, going to the first swim and they don't know how to swim yet, or, you know, they, they've never been an athlete and they're afraid of being judged. I think those women in general might feel a little more comfortable mm. being surrounded with their peers, you know, the other women. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of that. I think the club was wanted to attract the kind of person who might be intimidated with a more competitive or, or, you know, the, a more mixed, maybe mixed gender kind of club. Um, what it misses out on is it misses out on the guys because the guys are cool. <laughs> <laughs> And I've talked to several male triathletes, and they are—they're really nice, and they are just as supportive as as the women. And um, I think it adds a different dynamic. So, um, you know, I, it, there's pros and cons to 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 both, I guess. No, but I hear what you're saying. It's kind of like if we can create an environment where people feel, feel safe around their vulnerabilities, at least they're willing to try. Yes. And and if right. we, yeah, and if we remove or for some females and, and anyone when they're insecure, self-awareness is a big problem. So, yeah. and, and particularly if it's around body image and then so to have men around could, you know, kind of magnify that, couldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of it's, you know, it's all in our heads, you know, most of the time, but uh, that, you know, if you're intimidated or nervous uh, and inexperienced already, that's just one more thing to talk you out of yeah, it, you know, so yeah. we're, we're trying to talk women into it. <laughs> Say, yeah. Look, you're, it's all chicks here. You're going to be great. You know, it's good. <laughs> so then um, tell me about your experience. So, you know, you're a busy mum. you've got a career, you know, it sounds like you're pretty full on. So you started kind of thinking, well, maybe I should dip my feet in the water, kind of metaphorically and yeah. literally. Yes. Well, I started with running because I had some experience with running and it was seemed the easiest, you know, you don't have to learn swim technique. You don't have to buy an expensive bike and learn how to shift gears and learn how to fix your flat tire and all that stuff. So I was like, okay, I have these old sneakers and they're like 20 years old and I don't even think they were really running shoes. Um, and I just went out <laughs> started walking. I walked for two weeks. This is how out of shape I was. Walked for like two weeks every other day. And then I did my first run. I think it was like a half a mile. And I was 
so amazed at myself. I was just like in shock that I yeah. did it without stopping. It is a half a mile, you know, like now yeah. I'm, I laugh at myself, but you know, at one point we're all beginners at one point, you know, I mean, everybody, you know, even the Olympic gold medalist at one point he or she was a beginner mm. and, you know, you never forget that feeling where you thought you couldn't do something, whatever it was. And then you did it. So I did, I started with running. I thought I hated running because I hated it as a kid. Um, and then lo and behold, I was like, oh man, I really love running. Why did I avoid it for so long? All those years wasted. I love it. So, um, and then I ran and for two years I just ran and I kept waiting to jump in the pool or get on the bike. And I just kept putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. Um, and then, uh, I finally did get in the water and that was extremely humbling. That was probably the most humbling experience of my whole life. So, um, Why? but I do because I suck at it. So, <laughs> horrible, horrible swimmer. I can't even, um, like float or dread water. I don't, I don't, I don't know how to do the breaststroke kick. I'm just, yeah, but I, I somehow managed and, um, and it's hard. It's like really physically hard. I think, you know, if you haven't been a swimmer all your mm. life, I think it's, it's very difficult to pick up um, mm. later in life. Mm. Uh, or it was for me at least. Um, and then I got on the bike. I thought like for me, the bike, I was like, okay, I'll just get on a bike. I biked as a kid. That's fine. You yeah. know? Yeah. So I just, I just borrowed someone's bike and I got on the bike. You can see I was taking it very seriously. It was like a hybrid, you know, bike and wasn't fast, but that's okay. Cause I'm not fast. Um, so I did that, yeah, and then just kind of, it all came together. So, it all came together at some point. And, and at that moment in your life, was movement a part of your life beforehand? No, no, no. not at all. No, I was pretty, um, pretty out of shape. I mean, you know, I, I don't think if people looked at me, they wouldn't have said I was out of shape. But I, I physically, you know, was kind of living off of coffee and in the morning and junk food during the day and not enough sleep. And yeah, I didn't, I, I wouldn't have called myself active at all. Got on the Stairmaster sometimes, you know, when I was trying to lose the baby weight, and, you know, just never really, never really, it was never an outlet for me before. And so, and so one thing I'm always curious about is, you know, cause when, when we don't have a behavior in our life and we want to include it, or we maybe think we should, but we don't, we justify it because our life is, demanding you know, yeah. you know i lead a busy yeah, life i don't right. have time for that uh and and you obviously four kids keep respect so you know how did you find that shift in perspective and how did you then have to manage to change that came with life of adding movement into your life yeah you know i think when you just make the decision i'd like dragged myself kicking and screaming into it so you know i did it for the book i okay. really at first i didn't want to do it and i was like darn I got to do this for the book. Like this will make the book, you know, better. It will be real dry without this, this memoir piece, this experiential piece. And I love writing so much. Writing is my passion. So I was like, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm gonna... So I didn't even want to do it when I was doing it. I would like cry. <laughs> like, I don't want to do this. Um, I would just say, maybe I can back out. Maybe I don't have to do the triathlon. I can just, you know, watch everybody else do the triathlon. <laughs> I was really, um, I was really scared basically is okay. what it was. I was, yeah. I was scared. I was scared to make a big change. So I was scared of the water and I was scared of making an idiot of myself. And I was scared I was to be really slow. And I was scared. I, you know, of all these things that I wouldn't finish. Um, but really I think I was just scared of 
changing my life, you know, because I had lived this very safe, boring, you know, responsible life. I was a mom. I wasn't going to be doing anything too crazy. Um, yeah. And I, and I just was, and I just didn't want to be like, Oh, I don't want to be at the gym and I don't want to be all working out all the time. (laughs) You know, I don't know why. I don't know why I really don't, but it was different. It was something different. I just didn't know if I wanted to change my, my identity, I guess. Um, but yeah, when I, when I just said to myself, you know, we're doing this, I'm doing this, we're going to do it. And, uh, I really forced myself, but it's amazing what you can do when you just like force yourself (laughs) to do it. And, um, and then it becomes habit, like you were saying. It becomes, you become, you know, you can change your behavior if you. Sometimes the emotions come first, like the behavior comes first, and then your mindset, you know, mm. kind of comes on board. So I think that's what I did. The more I moved, the better I felt, and then the more energy I had, and then the more addicting it got. And I thought, oh, I ran a mile, maybe I can run two, or I swam four laps, maybe I can swim ten, you know. And then it, that's like the addicting part, you know to see how far you can, how strong you really might be underneath it all. Do you know, I, I work with a lot of females. Um, I have a, kind of actually a similar kind of group, a running group in Christchurch where I live. And uh, one of the discoveries I made, because being a young man, I didn't really know much about the mother's life. And uh, one of the discoveries I made when I started my running group, uh, which was a very much an entry-level running group, was yeah. uh, when people would join our group, it was the first time mothers would put themselves first. And uh, the sense of identity that gets lost through being a mother um, and yeah. how, um, you know, traditionally, not all females like this, but traditionally a lot of females, once they become a mother, it's I always come last. And yes. um, and one of the real big lessons I learned was that joining our group made them prioritize themselves and they learned a, real, a few really important lessons. A, that it was really important for them sense of own sense of identity and mental well-being, but B, also that their world would work for them, um, that almost a lot of females, that became an excuse that they allowed to limit themselves with, that my family yeah. needs me. And when actually when they went to their family and said, look, I'm doing this thing that's really important for me, their family would work for them, and it, it was quite liberating for them. Yeah, I I totally, I I agree 100%. I think those are excellent insights. And I think one of the huge things I had was guilt. You know, if I made this time for myself, then I was putting myself above my kids and my Mm. family and, you know, um, and is that fair? You know, what does that say about me as a mother? You know, I had it all backwards in my head. Um, And, you know, especially, I have four girls and, you know, as they started seeing me do these things that I, you know, getting over my, it wasn't just that I was out running and moving where well, that's important, but getting over my fears, doing something, even when I wasn't that good at it. And, you know, I mean, that there's like a humility to that, you know, to say, I'm going to do it anyway, you know, even if I'm going to come in third to last mm-hmm. or whatever it might be. Um, that was really important for them, especially because their girls. And I want them to grow up feeling strong, feeling empowered, feeling like they can do whatever they want to do. And that it's not about, um, always, you know, winning or being the best. It's just about your personal best, your goals that you set for you, you know, running your own race. Um, so what I realized was I was actually setting a really great example for them when I took care of myself like that. And I met challenges and I set goals and I met goals and I, um, you know, got faster and I got stronger, um, mind, body, and spirit. Like that, that was 
it, that was important. So in doing something for myself, I still was doing something for them. So then I was like, yay, score. Mm. <laughs> we both win. It's a win-win. Yeah. Hey, in your, in your book, you have some cool chapter titles and uh, some of them you kind of alluded me to. So uh, maybe talk about some of the chapters. So you've got one chapter that's called Swim, Bike, Run, Divorce. <laughs> now, now, which is a funny yeah. one because years ago, uh, John, John, the other guy who hosts the show, he does these epic camps, uh, which is crazy for elites. So it, it was like, I think one one camper was like 13 days and the first seven days I've done 63 hours of exercise. So it's kind of crazy oh and, and all sub 10 hour <laughs> I'm in. So all pretty, pretty elite. But, um, uh, and everyone was single, <laughs> you know, either divorced <laughs> or pretty much 90% of them were single or divorced. So when I read that, it kind of made me smile. So maybe tell me what you're talking about in regards to that. Yeah. You know, so the book is sort of part memoir and part journalism because I was, um, really interested in some of the, uh, triathlon topics that have been talked about in the, in, you know, the news in America, at least. Um, and one of those is, you know, does it cause a relationship strain? You know, are triathletes, um, these self-absorbed people and mm. they don't, they, they're, you know, they're leaving their, their spouse or their significant other, you know, alone for too long and all this stuff. So I, I was interested. I wanted to see, you know, I, I talked to people, um, I talked to triathletes, I talked to a, uh, a, a therapist who was actually also an Ironman. Um, so he had the personal experience of navigating a relationship with a non-triathlete uh, significant other. And he was also a therapist who worked with couples where this oh, okay. was an issue for them. Yeah. yeah. So it's out in California. So he had a lot of great insights. Um, and then I, you know, looked at some research of which there's like practically nil. Yeah. I mean, there's like one study out there. Um, but it was interesting, again, the diversity, you know, some people, the, um, the, the, the training demands, you know, were a point of contention. Um, when two people are, tri are triathletes or endurance athletes, you know, there's like that vying for, you know, I need to go out for the six hour bike ride. No, I need to go out for the six hour bike ride. And, you know, oh, and if you have kids and it's like, well, who's going to take little Johnny to the roller skating party, you know, or whatever it is. Um, and when one person's a triathlete and one person is not, you know, then it's kind of like, there's that whole issue, you mm. know, I don't understand what you're doing and why you're away so long kind of thing. Um, but what I really found was that it, it really was an issue when, um, there were already other issues, you know, it, it wasn't the, the triathlon or the training, the endurance sport itself. It was really indicative of a, a larger problem in the relationship mm. um and that there are so many couples that i spoke with that um very strong relationships you know their their non-triathlete spouse was just so supportive and so understanding and the triathlete was so um grateful to them and you know gave them so many you know props you know for you know for supporting them so that was interesting you know because i think triathletes get a little bit of a bad rap for <laughs> for their uh you know being so into their sport. Um, and again, you know, it just varies from relationship to relationship. I think honesty and talking about things and constantly reassessing on that journey, um, when you're training for something that it's very demanding of your time, I think, you know, the two people in the relationship just, just need to always touch base, mm -hmm. just touch base with each other. Cause things can change weekly, daily, multiple times a day, you know, mm -hmm. depending on what's going on. And, um, I think both people feel heard then, um, and respected, you know, yeah, it, 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 it's it, all good. And I think also what you're saying there is that 
make sure you put energy into working on the bigger problems. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, because relationships are full of stress and strain. If it's not somebody training for a Ironman, then it's, you know, somebody's mom is sick or it's a child, something happens or, you know, it, it, there's, there's, a, there's always stresses in a relationship. There's a job, you know, someone loses their job, somebody gets a promotion, has to work more hours, something changes, you have to move, you know, life's full of those kind of things. So um, if you can navigate them, it, make, it makes you stronger as a as a couple for sure. Yeah, I love this idea. I know this isn't really a relationship interview, but we're we're going there. Uh, (laughs) Sure, let's just do it. (laughs) But well, I said the whole idea of in our toughest time does it hurt us, or in our toughest time does it make us stronger? And you know, ultimately, a good relationship is the the second answer, isn't it? And it's kind of learning how to be a relationship that does that. And 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 things like adversity of lost time through sport can be something that makes you stronger, or it can actually make you weaker. And how do we communicate and have good skills together to be able to make that a stronger thing for us? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Um, so I suppose you know, because in, in, in our, our audiences, you know, we're Iron Talk, we're bloody Iron Man Talk. So like, it's you're kind of pre- preaching to converted in many ways with this book or fast, but in many ways you can also touch many people with your work with our audience because uh, we're we're taking the drug. You know, we 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 understand. Oh, yeah, 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 you get it. <laughs> and so you know, like, and I always think that you know. The thing you're passionate about, partly part of your job is to get other people passionate about it as well. Um, you know, you're a feeder for your passion. And so, you know, many people who are listening to this interview probably already love Iron I mean, you know, high levels. But they've probably got lots of people in their world who look at them with admiration and uh, curiosity, maybe even kind of, well, maybe not jealousy, but kind of want to explore it. What would be your yeah. advice to, to the athlete out there who has people like, you know, obviously get a hold of your book and maybe pass it on, but what would be some of the pieces of advice you'd give to those people to support those around them to maybe get into something like triathlon? Yeah, I think I think people are in awe of triathletes, um, you know, and those kinds of endurance sports marathons and things of that nature. Um, my advice is, you know, Everyone can do it. I mean, you don't have to do a full Ironman. You know, there's these mini tries, there's these sprint distances. There, If you don't think you can handle open water, you know, there's pool. You know, once they are in the pool, you know, for a pool swim, there's, um, you know, if you're a woman, you can do a female-only triathlon. Um, there's, there's just... So you can do a duathlon, you can do a splash and dash, you know, if you're just nervous about one of the legs, there's so many multi-sports to choose from. Um, So I do believe everyone can do it. You know, Mm -hmm. everyone can do it. You just have to want to do it. So (laughs) if you want to do it, then you just, you know, pair up with a buddy. I don't know. I just feel like um, I'm sure there's people that do these things alone and train alone. I actually trained alone a lot, oddly enough, even though I was in this tri club. Um, but, uh, just doing it with a friend, pulling in, you know, your neighbor, your sister, whoever it might be, um, it makes it fun. I just mm-hmm. think there's, there's a huge fun component to it. So if you can just stop thinking of, if someone who's a little intimidated can stop thinking of it as a, a race and I'm talking about recreational level, you know, yeah, person who's yeah. just trying it for the first time and thinking about it as a race, think of it as an excuse to get together with friends, to be at a very inspiring event. Um, cause every triathlon is super ins- inspiring. You know, there's, a, there's always something going on there where you're just like, you really touched and moved and the vibes always super positive. Um, and, and just, just do it. Like 
we're all stronger than we think. We are all capable of doing much more than we think we can. And the power of, I think triathlon in particular is extremely transformative because it is so hard. Mm -hmm. And there's always one of those three events that's like your nemesis, you know, or even if you feel good about it, maybe there's one that, you know, is your weakness. But for a lot of people, there's one that they're flat out like scared of, <laughs> you know, um, and so I think conquering that and being able to do something that's so difficult is um, an incredibly transformative thing. So I, I think everyone should do one. And and if you have someone in your life who's doing one and you don't get it, yeah, just go out and pick a little mini triathlon with a flat bike course <laughs> and a pole swim. I'm telling you, they're out there. These mm -hmm. like nice, you know, doable, manageable distances that have a low intimidation factor and get your t pinky toe in there and see, see if you like it. Yeah. And also I think one thing, you know, with, with content like the, you know, your book and stuff like that is that one of the real important things is that for people who aren't in it to see examples of people like them being successful, because, you know, to me, inspiration is when I see someone who's close to my ability, do some change that, opens me up to thinking that I could do it too and you know so yeah. like our audience you know for you to go and say to a workmate oh you should think about doing a triathlon they're probably gonna go yeah but you're an Ironman you know you, you know you're not me <laughs> whereas if you know if they get something like you hold of your book or see people like them and I'm sure that's one of the power of, you, of the club you know your club is that yeah. it's it's everyday people seeing everyday people doing everyday people yeah, yeah yeah absolutely yeah and so you know like if you my piece of advice was was maybe encourage them by showing them people like themselves being successful as well absolutely yeah. absolutely and um, also in my book there were 13 um, women that I profiled who had very interesting amazing stories one woman um, races she has ALS she's in her third year since wow. diagnosis and she still races um, on a on a trike you know a hand yeah. Yeah. Uh, or not, it's not even a hand it's like one of those like recumbent yeah. bicycles um, another woman had gotten hit by a, a, a car, unfortunately, when she was training for an Ironman and was just her entire body was just shattered. Like every vertebrae in her Oof. back was broken. And she came back and did wow. an Ironman, a full Ironman, yeah. And, um, you know, an, another woman had, you know, scoliosis and she overcame that. Another one had this rare brain dis, uh, disease that uh, she almost died from and she came back and did a, a triathlon. So, you know, another woman had, you know, lost a lot of weight, um, so it's just, it's, it's neat because it's not even the everyday woman, but even women and men, you know, um, who are sh struggling with, you know, serious, uh, medical conditions or, mm. or injuries or, um, things in their life that would make it very difficult to, to compete in something like triathlon. They're doing it, you know, and it's amazing. It's, it's really, that's inspiring too, you know, um, that there's, there's, it's incredible we we can do when we put our mind to it and we put the the time aside and we have that kind of will um to 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 do something slightly outrageous <laughs> yeah no it's, it's awesome hey well the book's called woman and try uh you can get it from obviously places like amazon and, and all around the world and uh just any other thing you want to add before we wrap things up no it's been so nice to talk to you thank you very much for having me yeah, no, awesome. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. If you And I'll put a link to it thanks. on our show notes, www.iamtalk.me, so you can get hold of it and pass it on as well. So thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks so much. It's pretty fascinating stuff with this, John, because she 
the numbers they get are phenomenal. Like, I can't remember the exact size of the place you live, but it was kind of like the equivalent of like a Christchurch, maybe a little bit bigger than Christchurch. Mm. And they had a membership. Now, I did this two months ago, so I know you guys have just listened to it, but it was something like about 400 members. Mm. That's pretty phenomenal. It's great. Imagine if Christchurch, I think I had 400 female members. Absolutely. It's just, it's all about building community, isn't it? Yeah, it really I assume is. that's what she said. Yeah, yeah, no, it was. Lots of good insight, really. And, and, just making the sport more accessible to everyday people, mm. you know, which is one of the real key things, but really cool stuff. So her book is Woman Who Try. You can get it from Amazon. Uh, Velo Press as well. Yeah, Velo Press. They always send us lots of books, don't they, John? There's another one on the way as well. Yeah, I just got an email saying, the book's coming. I don't know which <laughs> book it is. Hopefully there's nothing too corrupt. Um, but yeah, so check it out, Woman Who Try. And it's a good size book too. And there's just lots of good <laughs> Big word, big letters. Yep, yep, yep there's two words per page. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so check it out. It's uh, Alicia. Now, John's sponsor. Athlinks.com. Now, it's quite often you've got that, that sort of acquaintance who you know is a triathlete or you know he, they, they, let's they say, let's, let's, let's put a scenario together. You start a new job mm. and a new job and you, you know, you're trying to kind of make your mark and then you meet a mate at work and he goes, you're quite hardcore maybe into it. Yeah, and they go, I'm a triathlete. You go, oh, are you just? Yeah. Now, suddenly, what do you do if I'm in? You say your time, don't you? Yeah. Oh, what time do you do? Yeah. And what you can do is you can be cool and you just don't mention the time just because, mm-hmm. you know, because you look a bit desperate when you say, oh, oh yes, how fast do you go? You know, you just kind of say, oh, that's really cool. I love the sport. Exactly. And tell me about it. Yeah. And then you go to the athletes, you find the athletes, you check out their time. Now, if you're better than them, Yes, drop it. Equally, if you're on a camp or something like that and you want to suss people out. So I went on to um, I went on to the beta version of Athlinks, which I actually really like the the lookout look of it. And I plugged in good old Peter Mills, but Bi- Mr. Bionic Man from Switzerland. He came over on Epic Camp France last year. And uh, and what you can do is you click, put their name in, press enter, click on their name, and then you can go and look at their statistics. And it gives you the summary of all their PBs over the dis- different distances. So, oh, wow. you know, I know I knew Peter from the camp, and I knew he was, he won't mind me saying, his swimming's not his strength. Right. Uh, up. And he was having his 50th birthday over there. So he was there, I was having my 40th, and he was, he, he, he just turned 50. And was this in France? Yep, okay. yep, yep. And he was an axe on the bike, and he was a good, strong runner as well. But it's kind of one of those kind of, you go, I know you're good in this camp, but I'm not quite sure how good you are in terms of when you go out and racing. And now I can just plug in his details here and I can find it all out. Two, yep. two hours 50 for a marathon. Not Ooh, too oh, shabby. Smoking. I need to give you about that fast right now. Did the Bermuda Marathon in t- 2007. And then he's got a 117 for a half back in 2005 in Dublin Adidas half, half marathon. Nice. And you basically just go through and find out all their personal best. 36.25 for a 10K back in 2005. And uh, Olympic tries, 10-mile running race time. Oh, that would rip your undies. Ten, one hour and 17 seconds. Just missed out on going under the hour for 10, 10 miles. And 10 hour, 12 minutes for Ironman Florida in 2010. So just a cool way. As Bevan said, you can either go and suss people out. Maybe you've just told you they're a triathlete and you want to see what they're like. Or elsewhere, if you're at a race or if you're at a camp and just want to find out a bit more about somebody who's just introduced themselves and maybe they've been talking a, a low game or they've been talking a really high game and you want to actually see what they'll be able to do, check it out on athlinks.com. Okay, John, but let's get on to the next interview. So next up we've got Jack, Jack Lessick, and he is a sports psychologist and he's going to be sharing some insights with you guys. Righto, Tim, I'm very, very excited to have a, a man called Jess, Jack, sorry, Jack Lessick, and he, as he said to me just then, it's like more healthy and less sick. So Lessick is his last name. Uh, he's a bit of a legend to be honest. He's got a 
a long career in academia around sports psychology and has had quite a bit of influence on that that part of the world. And so instead of me talking about him, I thought I'd say hello, Jack, and maybe you can start by telling us a little bit about your history. Be glad to, Bevan. Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to be somewhat brief, but I, I like to tell the history because it also is a learning lesson. Mm. And uh, a long, long time ago, uh, I met with my first major failure. I'm going to start out with failure because a lot of people experience failure. Uh, I went off to college to become an engineer because I was very good in math and very good in science. And uh, the first year in school was horrible, absolutely horrible. I didn't like it. I wasn't motivated. I didn't do very well. At the end of the year, I came within a tenth of a point of being kicked out by the university. Okay. Uh, I went home for the summer. I came back the following year. And I was so determined to succeed, so determined. But within a month or two, it was the same thing. I didn't like it. I didn't like myself. Uh, none of those things. So one uh, autumn morning, I was walking to my class. You could see my breath in the air, and it was a beautiful day. The leaves are turning, and I was sick in my stomach. So instead of going to my class, I went to the counseling center, and I said, I need help. And I met with a young man who was my counselor for a couple of weeks, and then one day he looked at me, and he said, why are you in engineering? You're a people person. Mm -hmm. And with his guidance, the following semester, I took sociology, anthropology, psychology, and I got a 4.0, which was all A's top, okay? Without even trying, because I fell in love with all mm -hmm. of them. I fell a little more in love with psychology. Uh, so to make the long story short, I went off to grad school, became a psychologist, got my doctorate, loved it. I fell in love, and I'm still in love with it. I've had several careers. I started out very traditionally doing clinical counseling, working with people who had mild mental disorders, uh, depression, bipolar, those kinds of things uh, in an institution. Eventually, I left the institution, went into private practice. Around the time when I went into private practice, I also started running recreationally just to be more healthy. I wanted to lose a little weight. Uh, I gave up smoking. I was a cigarette smoker for many, many years. And once I got into running, uh, I loved it so much that within two years I was doing marathons. Okay. Mm -hmm. I ended up doing 14 of them wow. over about a 10 year period. Okay. But it was my own conversion to, to exercise and sport that led me to change my life very dramatically. Uh, because that gave me the courage to leave the institution, go into private practice. It gave me courage to end a relationship that was not a good relationship and to reorient my career. So as I began the, uh, the clinical practice, I was also more and more interested because of myself in the mental part of being a serious athlete. Okay. Not an elite athlete, but a serious athlete. I wasn't great, but to me, it was very important to set goals, to work hard, to achieve those goals. So over the years in my practice, it became more and more working with athletes and other performers like musicians and dancers. So that during the last five years, that's all I do. I only do sport and performance psychology and I love what I do. Yeah, you know, it seems like you've been in, in the game for a long time. What, what are you saying the last five years is kind of full time, but how long were you into yeah. sports psychology as an overall? Overall, 30 years. So, so when you, because yeah. I can't, I can't imagine it was a big, big area 30 years yeah. ago. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Say it again, please. I can't, I can't imagine it was a big area 30 years ago. It wasn't. It was very, very small. Uh, and 30 years ago, uh, the U.S. Olympic Committee had their very first meeting on sports psychology. They didn't have it in their programs at all. So I had to do a number of things in order to make this conversion. I did a lot of free public speaking, you know, to coaches, to school directors, to anybody who would listen to me, explaining what is sports psychology and what we do. And most of them didn't have a clue. And those who did thought we only work with elite athletes. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we don't. We work with any serious athlete. So it can be a 10-year-old figure skater, you know, or a 75-year-old golfer, everybody in between. So I had to beat the drum and go out there and do a lot of publicity work. And slowly over the years, you know, a few years later, I'm doing 20% athletes, 50%, 80%. And then finally, about five years ago, I said, that's it. That's all I'm going to do. Today, at least in the States, uh, it's very different because most athletes and coaches know about sports psychology, whether they use them or not, they know about them, usually favorably, you know, and uh, that makes it much easier for those of us who are developing and maintaining practices, you know, to get work to do. The, oh, you're, the you're, one thing, yeah, the one, the one downside is that so many people think that sports psychology is only for troubled athletes, okay? Not for every athlete. And I view it differently. I view it, it's like strength and conditioning. Every serious athlete gets a workup on strength and conditioning. They know what their weaknesses are. They know what their strengths are. And then they can be given exercises to improve their weaknesses. And I see the same thing with the mental skills, not just for someone who's in trouble, but a good profile, finding out what are your your, your, your strong mental skills for your sport, and where is there room for development? How would you define uh, sports psychology? Well, I guess I would have to say, you know, there are a couple of definitions. One is a little more academic, and that is the study of how sports affects people, and also what kind of people are successful in sport, kind of a two-way street. That's a little more academic research side. Uh, my side is applied sports psychology, and that is working with real-life people uh, who are predominantly athletes, although, as I said, we also work with musicians and other performers, and just helping them uh, to be the best they can be uh, from the mental point of view, because most of them are doing what they need to do in terms of learning technique for their sport and strength and conditioning. Uh, but very often they don't address the mental part systematically. You know, for example, uh, a coach may say to a player, you know, relax. Now, usually they don't say it so nicely. They'll say, relax, God damn it, relax. <laughs> the goal is worthwhile. The method may not be successful. <laughs> Because they don't know how to teach relaxation, mm. but that's what I do. Uh, I can teach someone how to relax in pressure situations. I can teach them how to maintain focus, how to set goals, and how to work toward your goals on a daily basis as needed. When you first stepped into this field, as you said, it was very much kind of unknown and, and um, maybe not resistance, but almost just people not knowing about it before, you know. Yeah. And so it was kind of selling you know, the value of it mm -hmm. to your world. Uh, yeah. How much has shifted in your evolution with the understanding over this 30 years? Like when you first started out, what, what, were, you, what were the kind of the things you were teaching and how, how much has that shifted in the time you've been doing it? Yeah, that's a good question. I'd say the basic stuff that we do 
um, is pretty much the same. The way we do it has changed uh, because our knowledge base has increased through research. We also have more tools at our disposal. Uh, for example, right from the beginning to this very day, anxiety has probably been the number one reason why people come to me. My very first uh, client was a 17-year-old figure skater who was throwing up before competition. He was so nervous, wow. okay? Now, today, he's he's approaching 50, and he's sending referrals to me because I've been around for a long time. I'm an old <laughs> dog. Uh, but I was helping him to learn how to relax. Uh, I still do that with young people. However, today I do biofeedback. In addition to um, teaching breathing techniques and things like that, uh, I have a computer and I can hook the person up with fingertip sensors that measures their heart rate, a whole bunch of other things. As they practice the breathing, they're getting direct feedback. The computer looks at their heart rates and can tell them, indeed, you are relaxed or you're not doing it quite right. Mm -hmm. So you aren't relaxed. It takes the guesswork out of it. So our technology has improved significantly, you know, during these interim years. Yeah. So, so your ability to give better feedback because you're going to be able to tools to help you understand where they are. Yeah. Okay. Well, you, you talk yes. a lot about um, the nine mental skills. Maybe you can just give us a little a kind of a breakdown of each and, and you know, give I would. Some, yeah, I would. Sure. Let me start out with why it came about. This, this is a, a frame of reference uh, that I put together about 15 years ago. And the reason why I did it was that coaches and athletes were talking more and more about mental toughness. Mm. Okay. Now, the one side of that is okay because it was acknowledging that there's a mental component to sport. However, the choice of words I don't think was a good one. Toughness is really more like a physical term, trying to translate it into a mental term. But it isn't just toughness. It's a lot more subtle mm -hmm. and differentiated. Uh, the other thing about mental toughness is the question, well, what is it? And how do I get it? Do I just grit my teeth and make a fist? So about 15 years ago, I spent about two years on and off translating mental toughness into what turned out to be nine very specific mental skills. Okay. And these can be defined, they can be measured, and they can be taught. Now, the content of the nine skills, which I'm going to talk about in a few moments, is not something I invented. This is kind of the state of the way people are. It's sort of like the tools and the concepts that most psycho sports psychologists would use. But what I did is I put them together in, a, in an organized way that I think is very understandable. That was my goal. And I've been using it in my practice for 15 years. And I've also shared with, with colleagues worldwide who are also making use of it. Okay, so let me talk about about the nine skills now. Okay, and <clears throat> we're going to talk about three time periods that that require different mental skills. So we're going to talk about first of all performance mental skills, and that's while the person's behavior is being measured. So let's say in tennis, for example, the athlete is in performance from the moment the serve is executed until the point is over and it's awarded. So then when, the when it's actionable. That's right. Yeah. When, is, when your behavior counts, when you can do something well or make a mistake. Uh, in track, for example, it's from the start of the sound gun until you cross the finish line or whatever. Some sports like track, once you start performance, you're in it until it's over. Mm. But tennis is a stop and start sport. So you get little pockets of relaxation or whatever you want to do in between. Okay? What about, what so about we're going to talk. Just, just while you're talking about that, yeah. um, 
what about the duration of the sport? Like, you know, I, I did Ironman triathlon for years and you did marathons, oh my gosh, you know, yeah. so, you know, like yeah. a tennis and, and a track, you know, your duration of yeah. time where you're in that, that kind of sure. your performance, you are, it's very short. Whereas like a triathlon, you can be out there for 15 hours. Absolutely. Compared to a 10 meter, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. 10, 10 seconds. Yeah. I trained for four years to run for 10 seconds, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, that is a variable, you know, and the content may vary a lot as I'm working with the athlete because the challenges are very different from a sprinter versus a marathon or triathlete and all that. But still we talk about let's let's define first when the athlete's behavior counts, you know, okay. whether it's points or whether it's a clock or something like that. Okay. Yeah. That's when they're in performance. Then and, and if you're if people out there can imagine uh, a pyramid and now I'm talking about the top of the pyramid. The top of the pyramid is while you're in performance. And I'll go back in a minute yeah. and fill in the gaps, okay? The second level, the mid-level on this on this pyramid is what I call preparatory mental skills. You're not yet in performance, but you're preparing your mind for performance. And then the very base of this pyramid are what I call basic mental skills that are necessary day in and day out to continue improving as an athlete. Okay. And this is the same whether you're a 10-year-old figure skater or a 75-year-old golfer, whether as long as you are, you know, serious about your sport, that's all, you know. Um, so, so that's kind of like the daily not, habits that you're going to have, which obviously yeah. the pyramid's kind of like that's your foundation and then yeah. your preparation is kind of just before the moment and then, then extra yes. performance. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. So we'll start out now. You know, and maybe let's let's just is tennis a good example? Is yeah, that a good yeah, sport? Yeah, yeah. Yep. I'm, okay. I'm actually going to the French Open final in a couple of weeks, so there you go. That's okay, a very yeah. good example. Okay, yeah, sounds good. Sounds good. So we have three mental skills that are very important while the tennis player is playing the game. Okay, concentration, and again, this is true of all sports, but the way in which concentration is required is very different in tennis than, for example, golf. Golfers need to concentrate, tennis players, basketball players, and so on. But the intensity and the duration of concentration will vary according to sport. But all athletes, when they do well, what do they say to the media? I was really focused. Mm. Okay, that's what we're talking about. So let's talk about what concentration is. First of all, it's knowing what you should be paying attention to. Okay, now you usually learn that early in the sport, but not always. Now, once you know what you should be paying attention to, then you need to have the skill to block out distractions, first of all, from the outside world. If it's tennis, you know, the crowd, the referees, the family, all that kind of stuff, the noise, the media, to be able to not pay attention to that, to block out distraction. More challenging are what I call internal distractions. Okay, and those are thoughts about the last time I played or the score or anything that's not going to help you to perform well at this moment. And the third component of concentration is being able to change concentration very quickly when the situation changes. Okay, tennis unfolds very, very quickly. So does basketball. And one needs to change their their concentration very, very quickly. Okay, or else they're left behind. If their mind is lingering, oh, I just made a mistake, they're going to make another one. Now, golf, by contrast, um, doesn't unfold very quickly. 
you know, so you don't have to change your focus, your concentration, you know, very quickly. So those are the components of concentration. Can, can I ask when I, how we... Please. Oh, oh, sorry, no, just um, you said, you know, so know the, know the different skill and then measure and yes. change. What would be measuring change yes. for concentration? Um, when you say measuring, I'm not sure what you're meaning, Bev. Oh, so, so when you're working with a client, you said, um, you know, we, we have the skills and we need to measure where they are with that skill, and then we yeah. need to help them change or improve that skill. Yes. Um, so okay. w what would be the process you'd go through to help someone measure their ability to have concentration? Okay, great. Um, I do have a questionnaire that I give them, a very structured questionnaire. Uh, that measures all these these nine mental skills. It's a lengthy questionnaire. It has about 110 items on it. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. And so they are answering questions for me about whether the mind drifts away, um, whether they can p perform in the here and now, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the measurement to zero in on where they need to you know, to work, to improve their concentration. Then if I work with them, uh, I will use different tools. I will, first of all, ask them for an example in recent times when they lost their concentration, okay? And now maybe they're telling me they lost concentration after they missed two simple points in a row. They should have won them, they lost them, and now they're thinking about what's wrong with me today rather than playing this point. Mm. So when I collect anecdotes from them, of real life experiences, then we can have a conversation about what should you have done? Now that you're looking back at it, what should you have done when that happened? And then depending on the person and what we're working on, I may take them through a visualization. You know, they may close their eyes, uh, they relax a little bit with some deep breaths, and they said, now let's go back in time to last weekend when, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then I guide them through doing it properly. Uh, sometimes if it's a repetitive challenge, I may record it on a, on a disc so that they can uh, actually practice it on their own, you know, relive it, relive it, relive it correctly. Uh, very often athletes do the opposite. They relive the mistake over and over again. Mm -hmm. And that's bad because that's stamping the mistake into the brain rather than doing it correctly. Mm, yeah, great, great. Okay, so um, first one was maintaining concentration. Uh, you see the three, yep. so the second. Okay. The next one is managing emotions, okay? And sport, by nature, is very emotional. And that's part of the appeal, both as an athlete, also as a spectator. Sport can bring out joy and ecstasy and camaraderie. It can also bring out disappointment, depression, and anger. All those emotions, okay? And we want to make sure for the given athlete that they have learned how to manage the emotions, okay? In a way, hopefully, that helps them and gives them energy, or at least at the very least doesn't get in the way, okay? Uh, so we will, again, on my lengthy intake questionnaire, there were quite a few questions about, you know, uh, do you get angry? How do you manage your anger? Uh, even positive emotions uh, can also be disruptive to performance, you know, and some of the tennis players will tell me that they're closing out the very last uh, end of a match, they're winning, and now they're getting so excited about winning that they're not paying attention and mm. they lose the last couple of points, okay? Uh, so anyhow, we do the assessment on emotions, and then if necessary, I do emotional training with them, okay? Uh, the third component of that the skills while you're actually performing is managing nervousness or anxiety, okay? And this is probably one of the big ones. Uh, probably 80% or more of all the athletes who want me to help them 
you know, call me because they're choking under pressure. Okay. And they'll say something like, I don't understand. All week I was doing really, really great playing good golf or whatever it might be. Came the big tournament on the weekend and I just couldn't make my shots, you know, because I, then I got more nervous and, and whatever. Um, some degree of nervousness is very normal and can be helpful to an athlete, particularly before the event begins. Okay. Um, most athletes, you know, um, you know, before the event is like, oh man, I'm tense, I'm nervous, but let's get started. I'm ready to go. Come on, let's get started. I have to wait a half hour. Oh, nuts, whatever. So they're feeling energy from their from their anxiety, but they're also feeling excitement. And it's rather positive because they're thinking, you know, I'm pretty well prepared. I could have a good day. Let me go do it. So that's when nervousness is a good thing. So okay. it's kind of, it's, it's almost like the excitement and, and it's kind yeah. of an, 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 a stimulant in some ways. Exactly. Okay. And yes, get some adrenaline going, yeah. which pumps them up. And they're thinking that they're probably going to have success. Okay. Now, when nervousness becomes too strong, several things happen. One, it's hard to concentrate on the task at hand because you're thinking more about your body. Oh, my stomach feels like I'm going to throw up. My muscles are tense. You know, my mind is racing. My, my heart is beating fast. Oh, this feels horrible. They're not thinking about the job. They're thinking about the discomfort of anxiety. Okay. The other thing that happens with too much anxiety is instead of anticipating something good, now they begin to think, I just don't want to screw up. I don't want to make mistakes, embarrass myself, cost my team points and all that. And those very thoughts make them more nervous. Mm. So it becomes, it becomes a vicious cycle. Yeah. The third thing that happens with nervousness is that the body tends to tense up. Okay. When we worry, we all of our muscles become tense, and then these muscles are not fluid, and the biomechanics are very different than doing the exact same thing in practice when you are relaxed. Okay, like shooting free throws in practice, you're nice and relaxed, but shoot one in a game under a lot of pressure, you may be tense, and that's that sort of thing. Mm. So those those are the big three you know, uh, while the athlete is performing. And as I say, the athletes that I work with, they don't come out of thin air because you set the stage with level two, which is what I call the preparatory mental skills. Okay. Mm. And there are two skills at that level. Uh, one is mental imagery and the other is self-talk in everyday language. This is thinking. We think in terms of pictures, we think in terms of, of, of words, usually blended together, okay? So for example, if, uh, if I'm going home tonight and I need petrol or gas, you call it petrol? Yeah, petrol, okay. yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're bilingual here today. Yeah, yeah. We know uh, what you're talking about. <laughs> that's right. So anyhow, uh, if I'm thinking that I have to fill my tank with fuel on the way home, I picture the petrol station and my words are reminding me and I have a very clear image in my head and that makes it easy for me to carry that out. Now, in a lot of life situations, this is not important. A lot of life situations, you're not goal oriented. So whatever pops into your head is okay. However, when you're about to step into a performance situation, whether it's stepping onto the tennis court, whether it's giving a lecture, going on a job interview, uh, taking an examination, all those are performance situations, then it becomes very important to set the stage with proper visualization and proper self-talk, mm. okay? Now, this will, of course, be tailored to the individual and the situation that I'm preparing them for. 
But the bottom line is I want to look at what they're doing now and to see whether I need to make an adjustment. And if they are having anxiety problems, they're probably not doing too well on this. They're probably saying things to themselves like, oh, I'm not feeling well, I'm not well prepared, uh, I don't want to make mistakes, and they're picturing themselves making mistakes and that sort of thing, mm. okay? So it's kind of that whole uh, thing of don't think of an orange, isn't it? It's, you know, exactly, yeah. precisely, yeah, okay. precisely. Yeah. You know, so I try to turn that around with them, and then very often, unless I'm very explicit, they'll say, oh, okay, I get it. So I'm really negative. So now I'm going to turn it around, Dr. Jack. Okay, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to say to myself, I'm going to win today. I'm a winner. Man, I'm going to win. Well, that's better, but I still don't think it's good. Because my feeling is if you say those things to yourself, you know, then, and they don't come true. You know, three tennis tournaments in a row, you're saying to yourself, I'm going to win, I'm really great, and all that sort of thing. Then your words become very shallow, and you don't believe yourself. Mm, so you have no so, self-credibility in a way. That's exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, so the way I approach it is um, I don't want you to make a prediction one way or the other. Obviously, it's a bad prediction to say I'm going to play poorly. But it's not wonderful either to say I'm going to play well because we really don't know what's going to happen. We don't know. Okay, and then they kind of laugh, but I say, that's why we're playing the game. If we knew who was going to win, we would just hand out the awards. You could go home without sweating, right? Mm -hmm. so I say, that's the, that's the excitement of sport is its unpredictability for you and for everybody else who is playing today. Okay, mm -hmm. so instead of making predictions, let's talk of what you, what you believe to be true that's going to help you prepare yourself and feel good. So if you can say positive affirmations, you know, I'm a good competitor. I love competing. Most of the time I do pretty well. Uh, if I relax and focus, I will play well today. Now, playing well is obtainable. Winning, no, because mm -hmm. winning is not your control because you don't get to choose your opponent or your opponents and you have no control over how well prepared, how good they are when they come on. So even though coaches and the culture and certainly the media is always talking about winning, 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 winning. And I'm working one-on-one -on -one with an athlete. I say winning, trying to win is very important. That motivates you. It makes you dig deep. It makes you want to be better. So I'm not putting that down, but don't evaluate yourself so much on win-loss records. And then I'll say, for example, well, look, you probably know you have won events and it didn't feel that great because your opponents were terrible. Mm. You have probably lost events where you played your absolute best and you walked off that court or off that field. And you say, damn, we lost. But boy, did we play well. We mm. really played well. Mm. So that's what you can control. Focus on what you can control. Let go of those things that you can't control. Mm. Okay? So that's kind of the middle band. That's preparing yourself. Now, obviously – I'm sorry, Devin, go ahead. Well, no, and, and ultimately what you're saying there is that to shift that away from, from negative, but it's not about, yeah, it's about getting yourself to a place where you've processed thinking around yes. how I can perform today in this, in, this, in, this, in this kind of moment, not necessarily around the result I'm going to get. Yes, Perfect. exactly. Yeah. Okay, great. Exactly. Now, getting back to the preparatory skills, the most important time to use them, of course, is just before you go into action. 
you know, either before the game starts or even when there's an interruption in the action. You know, for tennis players, you you, you get back into preparatory mental skills uh, between playing and the next serve and that mm. sort of thing. However, anytime you're thinking about playing, you're preparing yourself in a good way or not so good way. So it could be the night before, it could be a week before. For example, a team talking about going to a higher level of competition and the team is talking in the locker room and they say, well, next week we play so-and-so, you know, and some of the guys maybe say, we're going to get killed. They're so much better than us. Look how well they did last year. Well, obviously that's not very good, <laughs> you know. Uh, but they are preparing them. They're, they're rehearsing in their mind the wrong thing rather than, man, what a challenge. We're going to step up and show those guys. We're going to practice hard this week. We're going to get out there. I don't know if we're going to win, but we're sure going to give them one hell of a good fight. Mm. So that's how we kind of switch, yep. you know, uh, the individual's preparatory thing. And, and within it, what you're saying yeah. is to, to kind of see the whole environment, how that can influence it. Absolutely. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And I did use a team example and that's a whole other topic. And that yeah. is to get team on the same wavelengths, you know, but if we want to, we can go there a little bit later, but I'm going to talk about now the basic skills at the base of this, of this pyramid that I was talking about. And there are four, uh, at the very bottom, we have attitude and attitude is not simply good or bad attitude, but attitude conveys how sport fits into the person's life, whether they're an amateur or a professional. And for the most part, you know, I talk about, particularly with, with recreational and amateurs, you know, it's a little different with the pro, but reminding them constantly, particularly with young athletes that, you know, playing your sport is a choice. You don't have to play tennis. You don't have to play football, you know, but you choose to. And remind yourself that of every single day. It's not a job. It's something you choose to do. And you do it because predominantly it makes life better than if you didn't. Okay? Not every day, not every week, but overall, yes. Okay? Good attitude is seeing yourself as a developing person and as a developing athlete. And it doesn't matter what age you are, you're still developing. Okay? And what does that mean? It means that developing means that there are setbacks, there are bad days, there's failure, but you understand that that's part of the process and you accept that for the gains that are going to come, you know, as you stay with that process. Okay. Good attitude is trying to win, but winning itself, as I said before, may not be under your control. So don't get too carried away with it. Sometimes winning is not the most important thing. Enjoying your sport and acquiring new skills and becoming better may be more important than whether you want or not, mm. okay? Mm. A good attitude is feelings of self-worth as a human being should not be based so much on athletic performance. There are more core values, honesty, integrity, compassion, you know, hard work. These may be more important than, you know, your win-loss record. Now, that must be and a really you, interesting area for you because I yeah. imagine when you're dealing with very elite athletes who are yes. publicly facing, you know, and, and their, yes. their whole life is scrutinized, um, yes. their will tells them that's the opposite. You're quite right. You're quite right. And I would have to give them a little bit of allowance. I would have to say that it's different than the amateur, mm. you know, uh, because they do base some of their self-worth 
on this sport. And I have to say, I do that myself. You know, I'm a sports psychologist and part of my self-worth has to do with, am I doing a good job? Yeah. Okay. Am I doing yeah. a good job? In this? So we can't remove that entirely. However, those professional athletes, while that's a piece of them, those who also, you know, have some humility, you know, they, they know that they were given a special gift. They didn't necessarily earn it, although they're, they're, they're working hard to maintain it, but they also, you know, see the connection to, to family, uh, to giving back to the community. They do see the wider picture and how they fit in separate from just being a great athlete. Well, you know, and that's a really um, important area, isn't it? Because often you you, yeah. know, you you look at the post career of many athletes, and there's kind of yes. there's, there's kind of two oh. paths, isn't there? There's a person who just that's goes right. on to be a successful person, and then there's the person whose life kind of crumbles really once sport finishes. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. If that's the only thing they have, yeah. and they based all of their self esteem on their athletic career, and it's done, mm. they have a big problem. Yeah, versus yeah. the athlete who may be on the same team performing just as well, but he's very committed to his wife, very committed to his kids. You know, uh, off season, he drives his kids to school. Mm. Uh, he does some coaching. He does all these kinds of things. So when his career, or I should say he or she, when the career comes to an end, uh, yeah, it's stressful, but they don't crumble. Mm. They don't lose their identity because their identity is multifaceted, among yeah. other things as well. Yeah. Right. So anyhow, that's that's the attitude section that we talk about. Uh, the next section, these are under basic skills, is motivation. And that is, why are you doing this? You know, I mean, that's the question that I ask all the athletes that I that I work with. Now, I don't get, I, I help them with the answer because I give them a list of 15 of the reasons most commonly given why people do a sport. So they're not at a loss. Why do you why do you play tennis? You know, and there are things like because I like the social aspects. I like being on a school team. I like my teammates and all that. For someone else, I mean, the answer might might be uh, I want recognition. I want people to know that I do something very special. For another, it may be monetary. You know, I hope to play professional or in the U.S. I hope to go to college and, you know, get a scholarship so my parents don't have to pay a lot of money. Uh, it might be for physical fitness, etc. So when I'm working with someone, I have this list of 15 and mm -hmm. I basically say, you know, check mark the five that are most important to you and put them in order. What's the most important, second most important? And then I ask them after that, is to what extent is this happening? So if you are playing your sport for fun, which many do, which is good, you know, are you having fun? Mm. You know, uh, if you're playing for recognition from other people, are you getting that recognition? So I can kind of get a handle on, you know, are they getting back what they expected from the sport? Are they happy campers, you know, or is there some problem? So if they tell me, for example, playing for fun is really important, you know, they're 12, 13 years old and they're not having fun, then I have a conversation about what has to change in order for you to have fun. Mm -hmm. Why are you not having fun? It might be because my dad criticizes me so much, or it may be because the coach doesn't give me playing time. How can I enjoy my sport if I don't get to play? So we do some problem solving on that. Do, do you find with this area here, uh, you know, because ultimately if I can tap into the right motivation, yeah. I'm going to yeah. work harder. But, but if, if, you know, like a lot of times people in trying to seek improvement will move towards actions that aren't about, aren't enjoyable or aren't even really working for their motivations, but it's yes. meant to be performance enhancing and maybe pulls yeah. them away from sport. Is that something you experience? Uh, I'm not sure I'm understanding the question, Bevan. Could you say that again, please? So like, for example, you know, like in trying to 
find performance you know everyone's okay. kind of desperate to find the answer aren't they you know <laughs> and, and, okay. and you know sure. and so they'll try methods of motivation that maybe doesn't suit them ah. just because okay. someone else has said that helps somebody else perform do you find that happens okay. a lot oh yeah oh yeah um i think athletes are so, somewhat like overweight people um yeah. they're a little bit gullible for whatever comes down the, the latest new diet the latest workout and all that kind of mm. stuff you know and let's face it, there are a lot of hucksters in the marketplace, you know, who are taking advantage, you know, of, of that, mm. you know. Uh, I'm pretty much a basic guy, and that is, you know, find something that is reputable, that's science-backed up, and stay with it. Don't keep, you know, shopping around and trying a whole bunch of different things because mm, mm. there is good stuff out there. Well, and, and I imagine when people move down that path, it might move them away from their real levels of motivation, the, the real triggers. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. Mm. Right, which gets us to the next topic, which which is goals and commitment, you know. And in working with with athletes and other performers, you know, I I talk about you know uh, what are your long range goals? Let's talk about a year from now or two or three years from now, depending on your age. What would you like to be experiencing in your sport? How far do you want to go? Okay, uh, and then we talk about you know what are the steps for getting there. You know, for say the coming year, and what are the mile markers that if you want to be able to run a marathon in you know less than three hours, two years from now, you know in one year, what should your time be, and that sort of thing. And then we keep on coming down to it all has to translate into a daily training program. Whether you put it together by yourself, as I did, because I was an individual marathoner, not part of a school or a team, or if you have a coach or an organization that's working with you. You know, when you wake up in the morning, you ought to know exactly what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. That's going to move you towards those goals. And I like record keeping that you keep a logbook or a diary and you have your commitments and you check them off and that sort of thing. Mm. Even if they're very small steps, they're moving in the right direction. And for inspirational, I talk about can you imagine the tennis player that you're wanting to be in in a year or two years from now. Imagine that person and how would that person be different from who you are right now? And that helps us to define some goals. And, and how do you make sure they are realistic? Because you kind of get two levels, don't you? The person who doesn't really challenge himself enough and then the person yeah. who's re really unrealistic and, and actually there's no hope of them getting to that level. Like, how do you make yeah. sure they get that right? Oh, good question. You know, because uh, I see that sometimes, you know, not too often, but I do see it. And I never want to step on someone's mm, dream. OK, yeah. never want to step on their dream. But I will sometimes, depending on their age, you know, for example, when I'm where I don't work often with under 13. Occasionally I will with with figure skaters and, and gymnasts because, you know, around eight or nine, they are very serious competitors, too yeah. much so. And if they're nervous, no one else is going to work with them. So sometimes I do. And I can guarantee every figure skater age eight or nine is going to skate in the Olympics for the United States. That is that is their goal. At that age, I don't discourage it. It's I just very pass over it and say, well, what do you have to do this week in order to work toward those goals? OK, mm -hmm. now, if they're if they're if they're 14 or 15 and they're they're not an elite figure skater and they're talking about going to the Olympics now. In my heart of heart, I know this is an impossible dream. It's yeah. not going to happen, okay? So I don't step on the dream, but I talk about what's, what's the backup plan? You know, you and I both know that somewhere between two and four American women go to the Olympics every four years. Between two and four. Yeah. You know, that, that's the odds are not real good, you know? So if it doesn't happen, then what's the plan? 
you know. And usually, once I put it on the table, they kind of know that, you know. Yeah. Uh, their, their, their coaches are, are telling them a little bit more about reality, but nobody wants to say to them, that's ridiculous. You can't do that. You're not going to do it, you know. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes you're wrong. Sometimes you are wrong. Maybe you are working with one of those two to four, you know, who are going to make the team. Yeah. But by that age, you can make the prediction. At, at six or seven, you can't make the prediction. By 13 or 14, you can tell because mm-hmm. there are certain milestones they should have crossed if they're going to make an Olympic team. Then the, the last point uh, under the basic mental skills, you know, are, are people skills. And in order to be a successful athlete, you really do need to have skills, two different skill sets. One for dealing with people who are on your side, you know, usually your family, your friends, people you train with, your coaches. And you need to have the social skills to get along okay with them without bottling up your feelings if you have a grievance and without being overly hostile with your grievance, but learning how to respectfully bring up any issue that's on your mind and work it out and move on. Mm -hmm. And then the second skill set is dealing with people who don't want you to to succeed and those are your opponents. And depending on the sport, Pardon me. In some sports, um, there's a lot of trash talk. There's Mm. a lot of trying to get into your head, uh, trying to make you angry, make you nervous, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, Basketball is pretty famous for that, insulting your mother while you're playing basketball. (laughs) Tennis, cheating on line calls and those kinds of things. In our part of the world, cricket. Cricket. um, Cricket. Oh, sure. Yeah. The Australian cricket team are are one of the best teams of all time, but they're also known as being amazing sledges and just being quite brutal. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, cricket is very rare in the States. You know, there are a few clubs. It doesn't get any media coverage, but I was in uh, Dubai in January for a week, and that's there was a channel. It was just cricket morning, yeah. noon, and night, yeah. and I was watching it. I was getting into it. Yeah. It's, yeah. Like, it's a cool game. <laughs> oh, there's, really a lot of, there's a lot of that kind of the, your, your opponent is, is not yeah. just physically. They mentally are just drilling. Absolutely. You know, yeah. 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 So that's pretty cool. But then the second skill set with dealing with people who don't want you to succeed is where you're not do, they're not doing anything to bother you. But you're doing it to yourself, self-intimidation. And that's when you're saying to yourself, oh, my God, I can't believe we're playing against that team. They're going to kill us, you know, Mm. or that particular player is awesome. There's no way we can be successful against him or her, you know, and those are self-defeating thoughts. They, They suck out your power, you know, rather than. As I said, like before, when you start thinking that way, think of, wow, this is a challenge. You know, we're going to dig deep. We're going to fight hard. We are the underdogs win. You know, sometimes they win. Mm. And if they don't, they've played hard, you can feel good about it. So it's a matter of shifting your thinking from that defeatist attitude to at least feeling challenged. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so I suppose so there's a lot to, well, I could talk to you for hours, to be honest. You're pretty great, Jake. But um, <laughs> I suppose the one question I have is, you know, like for the everyday person who's maybe just doing sport, you know, not of the high level, how would you approach sure. them, you know, who maybe can't afford to or, or you know, is another level where they're going to go see a sports yeah. psychologist? How would you suggest they work through, you know, the pyramid and the skills? Yeah, I guess I would I would say, you know, you, first of all, you have to define your level of seriousness, mm. you know, and whatever the level is, it's okay. You know, and if you're engaging in a sport, it can be just simply we know that any movement is better than sitting still. Okay, so you don't have to run marathons. You don't have to run 10 Ks. And if you do those, you don't have to do them for a particular time. 
Okay. But my goal would be to help you enjoy what you're doing. You don't necessarily have to do analysis of all the nine mental skills and get into all of that unless you're getting pretty darn serious. But to have fun, to enjoy yourself and to get the benefit that you're going after. And if the benefit is is his health and, and fitness, that's wonderful. And you don't have to run marathons to, to do that. But I would I would hope that you'd be able to think positively that if you're if you're a recreational athlete you're doing it mostly for fitness the night before you're going to run a 5k or, or a 10k you know just think of the good part of it you know instead of getting nervous that i'm doing something really great you know probably only a few people my age can even do it at all so who cares about the time mm. you know and then afterwards, enjoying the satisfaction that, gee, I did it. I did something that most people can't do or, or choose not to do. Okay. Mm. So, uh, those are the kinds of things. Is, is, let's not make it more serious than it has to be. Mm. Uh, another thing that's is really important to kind of acknowledge here is that your nine mm -hmm. skills, um, mm -hmm. it's life skills really, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I'm glad you mentioned that because these are the same skills of, like I said earlier, anytime you're stepping into a performance situation, whether it's giving a lecture, going on a job interview, taking a professional exam, all these things, you know, pertain, you know, uh, if you wish, you know, your, your listeners, you know, can, can look at our website. There's a little more detail, you know, uh, and, they can they can probably apply some of this you know themselves just mm. by reading what we have out there on the website. Yeah, can I can I ask where do you struggle with in this? Where do I? Um, yeah. You mean in, in terms of my own personal endeavors? Yeah. Yeah. Let's uh, say it's probably more past tense because I'm not doing anything competitive anymore. Okay, I ran the marathons. I was an adult runner for 30 plus years, and that's what got me, you know, interested in this. And I used to have tremendous anxiety the night before a marathon. Usually, I was in a strange town. I was in a hotel room. I'm trying to sleep, and I'm thinking I have to get up at six o'clock tomorrow. Be be at the starting line at seven, and I'm going to run 26.2 miles. That is crazy. That is that is oh my god! How did I get myself into this mess? You know. So that was kind of where I started learning how to control my thoughts, my imagination, my breathing. You know, to be able to fall asleep and at least get that anxiety, you know, way down. Mm. And then also beginning to imagine myself running the race that I wanted to race, you know, to run, you know, realistically. Uh, these days, I'm not doing anything, you know, extremely challenging. I probably use these when I do presentations, like uh, the end of June, I do a two-day workshop. This is the 18th year we're doing it. And this is for psychologists and mental health people who want to transition into sports psychology. Okay. And basically I teach for 13 hours over two days and people wow. come from all over the States. Uh, this year I have some people from overseas and I get anxious. There's no doubt about it. I do get anxious. Uh, however, there's nothing like good preparation. So I don't wait till the last minute. Mm -hmm. I have three weeks to go now. And so I'm working on my slides. I'm working on my handouts. Uh, I'll rehearse it in my head and that sort of thing. I still will feel anxiety until it starts, mm -hmm. you know, once everybody's in the room and everything is together and I begin introducing myself, my anxiety goes way down. Mm. But before that, I experienced some. But it's also mixed with excitement. I love doing this and you know, I've done it for 18 years, so I do it pretty well. 
Yeah. So, um, yeah. For, for who, what kind of time period does it take for people to actually create? I, I know it's how long is a piece of string this mm. question is, but, you know, if someone is coming to work with a, a sports psychologist in an, in an area that, mm -hmm. like anxiety, what kind of time yeah. frame does it normally take? Well, again, a good question. Um, realizing that I can't make a good prediction it depends on the person, yeah. how severe, and also how serious and hard they, how hard they work with me. Mm. Generally, what I say to them is, you know, we're going to meet once a week, if that's okay with you, for about five times after our intake. And on the fifth visit, I expect you to walk into my office and, and with a big smile on your face and say, hey, this stuff's starting to work. Cool. Okay. Yeah. And then, then we begin to fine tune. And it's kind of like we talk about how much have we achieved? How much more is there to do? And, you know, do, do we want to continue once a week or could we back off to every other week? Cause I try to teach, do most of the teaching right up front and then they practice and we kind of refine it. Mm. Now with the anxiety, for example, it's not just talking. It's, it's, it's taking them through, for example, I take them through a 15-minute exercise on how to relax your body. It's called progressive relaxation. You may have heard of it. Close your eyes, take a deep breath, and we make a fist with your right hand, squeeze it, release, and relax. It's about 15 minutes. I record it on the CD, and I ask them to play it every day for a week to work with it. So they're, they're practicing the skill. The week after that, then I make I take them through visualizing, rela relaxing the mind, imagining yourself on a beach with a, you know the warm sun and hearing the waves and all that. They practice that. So now they have 14 days in a row that they are practicing relaxation. Then I teach them breathing, which condenses it. That becomes a trigger and so forth. So it's not like psychotherapy where we're just talking, mm. you know, they're practical skills. Uh, but usually around five weeks, they do walk in with a smile. Yeah, okay. And they do tell me it's starting to work for some more than others, but they're all seeing, you know, some progress. Uh, 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 well, I had another question that just totally popped out of my head. Um, oh, no, let's say someone is trying to find a sports yeah. psychologist. What would you say would be the things that they should be looking for? Well, the first thing, boy, that's, again, uh, the, the first thing is, is to see what their qualifications are. Now, there is an international organization called the Association for Applied Sports Psychology, AASP, okay? Uh, we are the largest sports psychology organization in the world, uh, and we do have people from, I think, 42 countries. You know, Now, granted, about 80% are North American, Canadian, U.S., but it is throughout the whole world. They have a wonderful website, appliedsportpsych.org, Okay, they have tons of information about sports psychology, and they also have a list of, of sports psychologists who are certified by the organization. Mm. Okay, now if I were to anywhere in the world uh, find someone who says they do sports psychology, I would ask them, you know, are you a member of ASP? And if they said yes, that's very good. Mm. If I said, are you certified by ASP? And they said, no, I wouldn't feel too bad about that. Are you working on it? would make me feel good. But if they roll their eyes and say, I never heard of it, uh, I would be a little bit questioning about them. Okay. Yep. That, that is the group. And, you know, we're growing, I think, 2,000 members now or something like that. We're still a small profession worldwide. We're still very small compared yeah, to many yeah. other professions. Well, and yeah. also, there's, it's a small market as well, isn't it? You know, like it's, you know, how many yes. people want to spend the money on a sports psychologist, and it's it's pretty niche, isn't it? In the U.S., you're correct, although it's growing. Yeah. 
And, you know, I know the U.S., you know, uh, the, the sports in the U.S. are very different from the rest of the world, you know, and our colleges are very, very big sport oriented. Mm-hmm. We have American football and basketball and there are very big scholarships, you know. Um, so high school age kids, parents, you know, they're working. I, I helped a swimmer last year who wasn't doing too well, end up his senior year having a phenomenal season. He got a four-year full scholarship to a university, which is worth about $200,000 U.S. Yeah. So so my time from that family's point of view was very well invested. So mm-hmm. we're seeing more of that in the States. You know, again, worldwide, I'm not so sure, you know, where that's the same incentive. What's the most rewarding part of your job? Oh, thank you. The most rewarding part of my job is 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 seeing people doing things they didn't think they could do. Oh, cool. Walk in here with a smile and say, Dr. Jack, guess what? Yeah. And, you know, and then also when they tell me, you know, you, I came to you because I'm wrestling, but, you know, I'm working on this in school. I got good grades because of some of the things yeah, that I'm yeah. applying. It's transferable skills, and then, yeah. Yeah, and then once in a while, I'm old enough, I'm out shopping, and a 35-year-old guy will come up to me and say, hey, Dr. Jack, you probably don't remember me. And I'll say, I remember the face, but that's all. <laughs> he said, I came to you when I was in high school, and you taught me some great things. I haven't wrestled since college, you know, but I'm still using that stuff. And I always say, what are you using? Tell me specifically. And they always say, the way you taught me that breathing technique, that I can relax just before performance. I still use that today. Those are the things that make me feel really, really good, Bev. Got to be honest, I feel we're only scratching the surface with you today, mate. So uh, thank you so much for your time. And, and maybe I'd love to get you again on in the future because I think we could probably go a lot deeper. Um, okay. You, you know, you're a very, very wise man with a lot of pretty amazing insight. Oh. So um, thank you so much. Um, people, if you want to oh. follow Jack, um, he's got his website. It's sportpsych.org, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Just anything else you want to share before we finish up here today? Just a real pleasure. Thank you for this opportunity, you know, and I hope that uh, there's a little bit of benefit to some of the people who are tuning in. Oh, I'm sure. Thank you so much. Awesome, mate. Thank you very much for your time. Did did I say, maybe, I'm not quite sure where we are now. I think we're going to (laughs) say, we'll say sponsor. I'm not quite sure. I'll put this in. Yep. (laughs) We're getting a bit lost. Have you done done endurance? I have not done extreme endurance yet. But I am doing extreme endurance. We said a couple of hours ago, a month ago when you listened to the show, by the month from now, it's going to get pretty crappy. We've <laughs> <laughs> got to that point. We've made it. Oh, dear. Okay, so, so ex-endurance. I, I am doing really well with my extreme endurance this week because I'm traveling, so I'm on my immune boost to make sure I don't catch any allergies and keep my immune system at running at full tilt and then also making sure I hit the extreme endurance. So I get over to Rote and I'm absolutely crushing it. Those few days we were doing a little bit of longer stuff a week out going to be untouchable it's just not going to hurt one iota and then come race day i'm going to absolutely crush it but always make sure you know if, if, if you have got an iron distance race or any race coming up and you are looking for that little extra edge and you've been thinking about it for a while it usually only takes a couple of days for the extreme endurance to kick in so if you're over a week out and you can get your hands on some i would strongly encourage you to do some it will give you a really nice boost i do vividly remember the first race that i did using extreme endurance and my god I think I probably had the best run I've ever had in a triathlon it wasn't the fastest but it was probably my best run that I've ever had coming off the bike it was a ITU race in, in Auckland and I've been drilling the bike trying to keep up with buddy Stephen Sheldrake and then uh got off the bike and thought oh, this could get pretty ugly and just drilled it the whole way through and nice. didn't have the muscular 
um, soreness afterwards. So that was the first time that I really, really got sold on the product. Uh, so check it out, xendurance.com. Remember the promo code IMTALK20 and you get yourself a 20% discount. And it's never too, well, it is too late. It's too late to take it after the race. But um, as long as you've got a week to go, it will be enough time to get you up to speed and give you that nice little boost on race day. Okay, xendurance.com. Guys and girls, we're going we're gonna to go and go and listen we're to Gordo. We're slurring our speech <laughs> and we don't know where we're at. Bevan's been, he, he was stoned about a month ago back it's in the, Amsterdam. I'm having, my, I'm having my flashbacks, John. Where are you this week? Oh, where am I right now? Let's have a look. Yeah, so okay, it's so uh, June 27th today. June 27th? Yeah. Budapest. Yeah. Have you been to Budapest? No, I have not. And you'll be heading over to pick me up from Munich in the next couple of days. Yep, um, yep. Yep, need to be lunchtime this day. We go to Munich on the 28th. You arrive on the 29th, do you? Yes. We're going on a seven-hour train to Munich. Oh, nice. Mm. Is that good? Have you travelled much around on trains in Europe? A little bit, yep. Yeah. yeah, pretty efficient. Yep, pretty good, yep. And then uh, you yeah, head to Munich, and then uh, one day in Munich, mm. and then uh, then camp starts on Friday. Good times. Good times Get right. us some German sausages. Yeah, I love a German sausage. <laughs> what, do, what do they call them? Brock, Brockwurst and... Some of that, yeah. Ah, yeah. oh, the spicy. Mm. Okay. Anyway. Here comes Gordo. Here's Gordo. Okay, so we've got... Uh, over the last few weeks, we've, we've discussed various different nutritional subjects. Bob Yeah, talking about metabolic efficiency. We had the paleo diet. And there seems to be a fair amount of confusion and questions about paleo style eating because it is quite different um, and it's it's very different to what we've been taught in the past in terms of how much carbohydrate we should be um, playing around with and uh, somebody who's tried not only nutritional things but also you know, lots of different aspects of training is um, Gordo Byrne who we got on the show and he's going to talk to us a bit from about Endurance Corner from Endurance Corner talk to us about his sort of experiences with different nutritional strategies and particularly the, the paleo diet so welcome along Gordo hey guys this is the, uh, the full family the, the, your kids of yours are going to be straight on the fruit and veggies and the paleo style <laughs> actually it's pretty funny My, the uh, well I, I actually think nutrition starts before you get out of your mom mm. and uh, totally. an interesting thing is with with Lex, our first child, um, she doesn't she doesn't like junk food because she's never had it. Uh, so she eats super super healthy, uh, and that's just been instinctive because it was. I guess I don't know if it was what she was used to or maybe that was all we ever gave her the option for. Yep. But when when you if you offer her junk food or anything like that, she's got no interest. Oh, that's good. So, nice. but that'll probably change once she's in school, and you know you get the social pressure going on. Yeah. So you know you've tr- you've tried different things, um, and you've come from a background of uh, you know be- doing the corporate lifestyle and, and probably doing the the the, the, the excesses, eating, eating in the the excesses and uh, you had a, you had a little bit of a, a little bit of a belly on the on the when you first started into your triathlon, and and I'm sure you when you I'd imagine when you first started you 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 were looking at the carbohydrate model, but I think fairly early on you c- certainly got into a very healthy eating pattern and um, from my understanding it was uh, along the lines of the paleo diet because you're mentioned in the paleo diet for athletes book so yeah. um, tell us about y- you know, your experiences with the paleo diet and, and how you sort of adapt it for being a, an endurance athlete yeah well a couple uh, before we get into like uh, any brand name stuff I think it's a, I think there's a couple points that are relevant to my experience. First up, I was overweight. I was a fat guy and I was out of shape. 
Um, and, and through nutrition and through training, I was able to become decent. Uh, I think a lot of the nutrition tips that we get uh, quite often are from people that don't have experience with being out of shape and overweight. So if, you know, if somebody's had a body fat of 8 to 10% their entire life, they simply will not be able to relate to the rest of us that put on fat fairly easily if we're not eating properly. Mm-hmm. As well, I think a number of people that have maybe gotten famous for certain nutritional strategies were not and are not particularly decent athletes themselves. So they've never actually had to figure out nutrition in terms of a high performance uh, environment for themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so I think that gives me a slightly unique perspective just because of my, my background. Now on the paleo uh, diet, it all started from way back, and I think it was my second season of triathlon, I I went and spent a weekend with Joe Friel. And I don't know if you can do it now, you might still be able to, but Joe would basically give you a personal camp uh, across a weekend, and he was living in Fort Collins at the time, so I went up to Fort Collins and paid him for basically a whole weekend consult. And through that weekend, I basically just ate uh, Joe the way Joe likes to eat, and and, you know, it's pretty much, I mean, paleo, people get distracted by brand names and things like that. I think if you look at really what it is, it's a, it's a balanced diet. So it's not, you know, it's not carb heavy. Um, and it's a relatively unprocessed diet. Uh, and I think the, and those are the key things that I think people should focus on is, you know, eating real food and eating an appropriate amount of, both total nutrition in terms of your total intake as well as total carb- carbohydrate. Um, because I think most people, uh, they tend to eat, you know, if you're gaining weight, I mean, you, you're eating a little bit too much. And I think a lot of people, particularly busy people, will go for convenience foods. Uh, and that's, you know, the sports nutrition and the highly processed foods, which uh, are not great if you're looking to stay full and maintain a stable weight. I think um, one, particularly one of the areas, and, and I know we, we shouldn't, we, we want to try to get away from brand names, but the, the paleo diet is what people seem to be drawn towards at the moment. And, and in my mind, I understand the basic logic of it in terms of, you know, it is unprocessed, it's a huge amount of fruit and vegetables um, and your lean meats. What a lot of people seem to be struggling with is firstly um, the elimination of your, your wheats um, and of your. Um, the staple carbohydrates that a lot of people are used to in terms of breads, passes, etc. And I think most people can understand the logic that that should be reduced and perhaps they have gone too heavy on that but um, are probably potentially struggling to eliminate that. And the, But the same token um, also with your, your dairy products that a lot of people are used to. So what, yeah. how have you sort of adapted that? Because I know you didn't eliminate dairy because I, I remember yeah. you going through cottage cheese like it's nobody's business. And, um, yeah. And have you eliminated those things? I know you eliminated bread there, and I used, to, I used to tease you. I used to I used to cook this hot bread um, at home, and God, yeah, I would machine. get really pissed off. The bread machine, man, that thing was killer. <laughs> I, I I I think most I think a lot of people will find that they perform better on a low gluten diet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't mean a no-gluten diet. I mean a low-gluten diet. Uh, I happen to be somebody that holds a lot of water if I eat a lot of bread. 
the other thing is bread's relatively empty calories. Uh, you know, if you compare, you know, you can have four pieces of toast with some spread on it. That'll get you to about 500 calories. Or you could have 500 calories of fruit salad, both carbohydrate, but the fruit salad will leave you feeling fuller. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got more, uh, you know, micronutrients. Uh, it's got more water in it. If you're an athlete, it'll help with your hydration. Um, so I think it's it's a, it's a more efficient overall strategy uh, for for an athlete and a working athlete. But it takes a little bit of effort because you don't just whack four pieces of bread in a toaster and then uh, you know spread peanut butter on it. You got to mm-hmm. actually chop fruit and go shopping. Um, and so it takes a little bit of organization and a bit of effort. So that's that's one thing, you know, if we're talking about bread, uh, I think bread's kind of like dead calories. It's sort of like sugar. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the other thing is that it's relatively straightforward. You know, I, I eat a ton of quinoa and um, uh, and for people that haven't heard of quinoa before, it's Q-U-I-N-O-A and it's just a seed and um, you know, it's uh, you cook it just like rice, you use it like rice, you can use it like oatmeal. Uh, it's, you know, I tolerate it really well. And for the volume, it's, it's got less calories than if you were eating something else, like say oatmeal. So again, it fills you up and it gives you what you need. Mm. Um, and I think that is, you know, I think you, you should just be looking at areas where you can change rather than, you know, looking to eliminate. So I think nutrition is a gradual shift. The way I eat now has been evolving over, well, probably 15 years since Johnny and I were living together. Mm. Um, and, and I think where people tend to go wrong and where they run into this big struggle is they decide, well, today's the day and I'm going to completely change the way I eat. And, and that just doesn't work. I mean, it needs to be gradual change. And, and where should people focus? I think bread's an easy thing to focus on mm-hmm. um, because it's, you know, it's relatively low uh, in terms of nutrients, so you want to kind of swap that out and get something that's got a few more nutrients in. The other thing is sugar. You can, you know, and that's where dairy comes in. A lot of people use their dairy really as a sugar uh, crutch. There's a lot of sugar in yogurts that people can have, uh, and and really there's just an excuse again, just for easy calories. I mean, you can throw down. I mean, Johnny's seen me do it. I, you know, I could throw down a liter of. Uh, you know, a kilo of, you know, low fat yogurt, and it doesn't really do anything other than just pour a bunch of calories into me. Mm. And, and I think, again, it's just, you want to be thinking nutrition rather than be thinking, all right, certain things are bad and certain things are good. I mean, there's a, you guys know John Hellman's down in New Zealand, mm. and I'm sure you've had him on the show before, or maybe, or if you haven't. Yeah, no, we have yeah. And, you know, he, he doesn't have any brand names. It's just, you know, good, balanced nutrition. Don't overeat. Make sure you're giving yourself enough fuel to recover and don't get too wrapped up. I mean, by the time, you know, this paleo thing gets really extreme, you know, by the time you're worrying about whether you're having a banana versus an apple, yeah. uh, you know, odds are it's pretty good, your overall nutrition. And, you know, so I think people that tend to struggle, they either say, oh, it's too difficult to change or they're just trying to change too much at one time. Yeah. What about in terms of um, this? Again, we've had a few questions on that. When you're in a very hard training phase, and let's say Epic Camp, for yeah. example, um, again, people are saying they're really struggling and they're, they're running out of energy, and their and their understanding of it that so uh, is they're not taking in enough carbs. How do you did you sort of approach it, say an Epic Camp style camp where yep. a lot of us just go bananas and it's just a complete carb fest? Um, how did you sort of approach that? 
Yeah, there's a really good question, Johnny. So yeah. there's a there's a few there's a few concepts that I want to share with your listeners. The first is your sugar threshold. There's an amount of training that you can do each day where you're not going to require a whole lot of Coca-Cola and a ton of sports drink. Um, you know, for instance, if all I was doing was an hour worth of walking and an hour worth of yoga every single day, I could probably be on a very low carbohydrate uh, diet. I mean, I know I can't because I've, I've, I've done it. So the amount of carbohydrate that we actually need is going to depend on our activity. And as well, it'll depend on the intensity of that activity. Now, because we each have different uh, abilities to burn fat, uh, if, you, if, if you're an athlete that tends to uh, not lose weight, even when you're training uh, you know, at moderate levels, then your fat burning might not be all that great. Uh, so, uh, you know, as a result, if you're going to do a, something like Epic Camp or you're going to do a really intense block, you're going to find yourself getting sugar cravings. And, when you, and you're going to need to feed those sugar cravings if you want to do training. So what you need to understand as an athlete, particularly if you're an over, overweight athlete or an athlete that's looking to lean out, is you're going to need to trade off training stress with the ability to, to use fat. Um, and that's why the best time to lean out is during the uh, early season and when you're doing your base training because you're not under a lot of pressure to do a lot of highly intense training. Uh, and, and I think so that's the first concept. And so an athlete that's 20 pounds overweight is going to get a lot more speed to the finish line, particularly for Ironman and half Ironman, by getting rid of that fat than they are by doing a bunch of highly intense training that they're, they're not going to be able to access on race day. And this is an essential point for Ironman. Um, you know, you, you got it. You got to get the weight off. And you get the weight off by uh, having a balanced diet that's low in sugar. I mean, I think that's the easiest way to explain it. And, and I get people to focus on processed sugar uh, as opposed to, you know, trying to eliminate fruit and stuff like that. Because the, the fruit, I find, leaves people feeling relatively full so they don't overeat on other things. Mm. And I, I now, think um, if, if you look at um, Bob Sieberhau's book, it talks a lot about your the periodization of nutrition and I think that's what you're sort of getting at there is you know most of us um, probably eat the same way year year round obviously would eat more during the you know heavy training but you know most people would still have a lot of their passes and all that sort of stuff when they're not necessarily training very much so I think that periodization concept is is quite an important one again don't you know you don't need to load up on pasta Mm. Uh, it, it's just not required. Uh, you know, pastas and breads and things like that, that's they, they, not a great way. I think you're much better off doing quinoa, uh, rice, potatoes, things that the body can process relatively easily. Uh, I, I think a lot of folks will find that if they, they eat a lot of stodge, um, you know, a lot of heavy pastas and things like that, it's going to make them feel slow. Whereas if you're sticking to, you know, potatoes, uh, rice, oatmeal, quinoa, those sorts of carbohydrates, it'll, it'll, it'll work a lot better. And then for training, you can use things like you can use juices, you can use rice milk, uh, things that, again, are relatively easy on the system and easy to process. What about um, in terms of how you've evolved with your race nutrition? Because, again, the, again come back to the, you know, the paleo word, that, that, that sort of 
perhaps prescribing um, that we look at our race nutrition differently. Have you sort of stuck with a sports nutrition product, um, uh, and, and how have you done that? Another good one, Johnny. Great question. <laughs> I, 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 think, I, I think your listeners need to—they need to have an honest conversation with themselves about why they're in sport. Are they in sport for high performance, or are they in sport for health? Because there is a trade-off between uh, being able to be a high performance uh, in a high performance situation versus having sport for health. And what do I mean by that? Well, if you look at most elite female triathletes, they would def- they tend to be optimized for performance as opposed to being optimized for health. And it's it's more obvious with the ladies because they look so different from say uh, a healthy mid-pack female athlete. The guys are the same thing. A lot of the guys are sort of chronically uh, hungry and uh, a little bit half-starved, uh, you know, when you look at those incredibly lean athletes. And that, that may be viable for a few years, but if you're a working athlete, you may not necessarily find that your best, best lifetime health uh, results from, you know, emulating uh, the absolute best athlete's nutrition. So that's kind of a little opener. Now, in terms of racing, it's totally different. Uh, you know, I've got what I, I've got my my daily nutrition, my training nutrition, and my race nutrition. You know, if I, if uh, you guys must, have, you guys, I know you guys have Mac on. You know, Maca talks yeah. about Coca. I, I, Maca talks about Coca Cola and Ironman, uh, and you know that's that's my uh, race beverage of choice. If if I could do my entire day on cola, I would. Now. That and that would probably be, you know, when I rode my bike across America with Klaus Bjorling, we had a lot of Dr. Pepper uh, for for nine weeks, and it's a very effective fuel supply when you're training. The issue is your teeth are going to fall out. That's <laughs> and, and I mean they are. I mean, yeah, damn, yeah. my enamel. Your teeth will fall out, and I can't imagine what it's going to be doing to my kidneys and my liver and everything if I was living on that, you know, nonstop. So. There's a, I make a health decision that, you know, 360 days a year, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and eat healthy, real food and minimize that sports nutrition. And then when I race, I'm going to go full throttle with like sugar and caffeine with cola. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, that, and that's my racing nutrition, which is totally separate from, uh, you know, my day-to-day nutrition. So, so I, I think if you try and do an Ironman on nothing but you know, cashews and bananas, it's not going to go all that great for you. Unless unless you're going to be out there 14, 15 hours, in which case your overall intensity is going to be pretty low and you could probably get through the whole thing just eating real food. So what's your current strategy? Like, Because I know you're mainly doing um, half Ironmans now. Are you basically yeah. solely fueling yourself on Coke or are you supplementing that with no. other things? Oh, you mean in a race? Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, you can't get cola on the uh, you can't get cola on the bike leg. So I, I use I use Infinite, and I and I like their heat mix because it has a, a few more electrolytes in it. So for for my for my bike nutrition, I'll use Infinite. The run I tend to just go with um, I tend to go with cola because you can get it uh, on the run. And then in my my training nutrition, here's something I do that's different from other people. In training, I'll actually train on the infinite recovery stuff. So I'll train on a recovery drink. And the reason for that is I want to get some protein in me across the day. So on my long rides uh, in particular, 
I'll, I'll have one or two bottles of recovery that I'll use strategically across the workout. The other thing I'll use when I'm doing epic style training, multi-day training, uh, I want to keep my digestion settled. I'll snack on nuts across the day so I got a source of fat. So that, again, that kind of, I don't know if any of you guys ever, I mean, everybody's probably had it. You know, if you ever try and live on like Gatorade for 10 hours, there comes a point where your digestion just totally rebels and then you just got to go to, you, you know, you got to hit the porta potties and that. So, so if I find if I can keep some real food across the day, protein and fat, I can keep my digestive system them settle down so I suppose the one thing you know like if our listeners have been listening to us the show over the last kind of two months we've had a lot of kind of talk around this nutrition discussion and, and I think if anything we've probably created more confusion than people than anything so I suppose if, if we were kind of trying to condense it down to some basic guidelines what do you think those guidelines should be okay yeah good um eat less sugar is that a good question very good question. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, number one, eat less sugar. Most athletes, when I look at their nutrition, they're they're eating they're eating more sugar than required for their activity level, and and particularly if you're if you tra- if you find that you're a bit overweight, uh, you, that's an easy way if you can reduce the sugar. And there's a lot of, a lot of ways that people get sugar in their diet. You know, you can get it through. Uh, you know, evaporated cane juice, they try and sneak it in in a lot of different ways. So that's why if you stick with real food, they can't sneak sugar in. The other thing I would uh, recommend that people do is try and have a a protein source with every single meal uh, that you have. So eggs, fish, meat, Um, try and get protein uh, into your diet across the whole day. I think that, that tends to work for people. Um, and those would be those would be the main things, you know. Eat less sugar, uh, try and get protein with every meal, uh, and then pay attention to what's going on. Frequent shifts in weight, you know, either going up or going down, uh, is a sign that your nutrition is not sorted out. I mean, uh, the ability to hold a stable weight is the hallmark of an effective nutrition strategy. And I think most athletes, if they're honest with themselves, are always trying to lose weight. And that's not a smart place to be. I think a much better way is get yourself to a weight where you are strong and powerful and just stay at that weight. And then, you know, maybe trim your nutrition a little bit when you come into a, uh, you know, a key race where you might want to be a touch lighter. But if you can get to a stable training weight where you're not binging you know, you're, you're recovering well and you're training well, then you've got an effective nutrition strategy and trying to, you know, trying to get the next magic supplement or the, the next magic diet is not the right way to do it. It's not required. So no sugars. Um, no, you miss, you, you no. eat oh, less sugar. Less sugars. Sorry. You, you, yeah. And, that, and again, it's really important. Don't eliminate stuff. Just, just, you know, if you've got a change you want to make, then just, you know, like, Cut, cut it in half. So, you know, if you're eating pizza six days a week, if you go to three days a week and you, you replace those other three meals with, you know, chicken stir fry with quinoa, you're going to be ahead. And I think where people go wrong is they try and go cold turkey on themselves and then they get frustrated and they say, oh, it's too difficult. Or then they start, you know, making up stories. Oh, I just have low energy. So I got to go back to eating Mars bars. Yeah. Um, you know, you're just fooling yourself. So less sugar, a bit of protein with each meal and obviously unprocessed foods as much as possible. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, it, it uh, keep it relatively simple. I mean, it doesn't need to be complex. I mean, you know, the basic meals that I eat, scrambled eggs with quinoa, a uh, huge salad with some sort of protein. I eat wraps, stir fry. I mean, those. That's it. I mean, it's it's 
pretty straightforward. You don't need a lot of sophistication to have an effective uh, strategy. Johnny, you should share your beetroot burgers with people. Those things I are good. Sh- I should put them in my recipe book that I've uh, that, that it's been milling on the side years. for about 10 years. Beetroot there you go. A good one. Um, we had a couple of questions from some listeners. Tim Gardner was saying he's in his Ironman build up to Ironman Wales. He's bought the paleo books as he's interested in doing that. But is that something, I know we've discussed um, the, the rationale behind changing nutrition, but in terms of timing for people that are in an Ironman build, say they're looking at, they say they've got um, Coeur d'Alene at the end of the month, or they've got Placid in July, or, or Ironman UK in August or whatever, how, is there any sort of tips you'd give them in terms of um, uh, doing this in a, in a safe manner so they don't, uh, their, their body doesn't completely rebel on them? Yeah, I think the um, again incremental change would be my recommendation, mm-hmm. and and I think uh, you know overall the reason we gain weight is is it's not what we're doing while we're training, it's what we're doing when we're not training. So if he's going to focus on something, try and clean up your non-training nutrition, and by that I mean just try and make it a little bit more healthy. Uh, and I, and I think if you focus on nutrition and health. Uh, with the changes that you make, you can supplement your Ironman training. During Ironman training and during your long sessions and your key sessions, it's really important to learn how to effectively fuel yourself and hydrate yourself. So I wouldn't try and do anything fancy there in terms of, you know, use the sports nutrition products, uh, teach yourself how to eat, um, particularly for the stronger, larger men. Uh, you got to learn uh, and, and you got to prove your hydration and your nutrition strategy well before race day. Uh, it would be my advice to him. Cool. And one other one we had from Nick Hutton, and this is related to the paleo diet. Given the average caveman didn't live long beyond their late 20s and early 30s, how is he planning to um, combat osteoporosis and poor dental development due to the low calcium content of the diet? What is he substituting for saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths given the staples of the paleo diet are no longer available? So calcium side of things, because I know the, the paleo diet sort of is... is no dairy. De- no dairy. Um, <coughs> so you're saying you, you, know, you, you, you still have dairy, but you know, it's all in moderation? Yeah, I mean, uh, the... Uh, I mean, I, I know the technical answer to get into a scientific argument with Nick, but my, my advice, rather than arguing and worrying about not being able to get woolly mammoths, would be just <laughs> eat a balanced diet. I mean, you know, that's why this whole getting hooked on brand names is a waste of time because yeah. you, you're going to choose one thing and then you're going to have an argument about it and it's going to completely distract you from the big point, which is that real food is superior to Taco Bell and McDonald's. I mean, I don't think anybody's going to argue with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and don't go too far one way or the other. Try and, you know, just be balanced and just look for appropriate levels of carbohydrate. And then the other thing that uh, I really want to, touch on because you, you talk about metabolic efficiency. Mm. Metabolic efficiency for a lot of athletes is really just a fancy name for chronic depletion. So the athlete is looking for an excuse to undereat. Uh, it's attractive to people that think they need to lose weight, uh, people that think they can go fast if they can just get skinny enough and just deplete enough. And that's why the focus needs to be on strength, quality of training, and speed of recovery. Um, you know, if, you, if you're training appropriately, you'll get enough depletion on your long days. You don't need to teach yourself how to do an Ironman on nothing but a bagel. I mean, it's just mm. not going to work. You can't go fast if you're not eating. It's mm. just the way it is. Yeah. Um, and, and that's why, you know, like one of the advantages I had when I was doing fast Ironman races was that I could tolerate taking in 600 calories an hour on the bike. 
and that gives me a huge advantage in terms of being you know being able to process calories and having calories on board maybe that still haven't been processed but they're in my gut and then I'm using fluids and things like that across the marathon and I'm able to go really fast um, going fast, particularly for a man, requires the ability to produce quite a bit of energy. And you just don't have enough glycogen in your body for an Ironman to go fast on no food at all. It doesn't work. I mean, you just can't, it just can't, can't be done. So, so why, how, why for you, how, how, did you, how did you enable yourself to be able to tolerate that amount of calories um, during the, the bike leg? Well, you used to, you know, swim swim five thousand meters at QE two pool. Doesn't exist get, anymore. Can't do it. Can't do it. Doesn't exist. <laughs> okay, so you know, eat eat my first breakfast and then go swim five thousand meters long course. Get out of the pool and have uh, oatmeal with smoked salmon. Uh, maybe some recovery drink. Get on my bike. Ride a century. Uh, you know, using my Ironman nutrition strategy, get off and run 10K. I mean, you know, just train yourself to eat and drink. Uh, I think also get really fit in your low to moderate intensity zone. In other words, have the ability to produce decent power with your heart rate down. And for me, let's say I'm riding a half Ironman uh, at 150 beats a minute, I got very, very efficient at 130 beats a minute on my bike. And so I was able to tolerate uh, calories and things like that. And then during race day, I'm not obviously I'm not eating oatmeal and smoked salmon when I get you know in T1. Instead, I'm having sports drink and things that are easy for me to tolerate and easy for me to process. And then everything's easier on race day. And then your heart rate might be a little bit elevated. Say you're in the low 140s until you settle. Um, but because the overall composition of your nutrition is easier, you're able to tolerate it. And I think you just you just have to train it, train your ability to eat. And this focus on depletion means that you get really good at depleting, but you don't get all that good at being able to process calories, which is a key thing uh, for men, particularly men that want to go fast in Ironman. Mm. So what's happening with Endurance Corner at the moment? I know, we know you've had... Uh, at least one of your camps this year. Um, what's, yeah. what's coming up and um, what's happening? Oh, thanks for that, guys. Uh, the, uh, we've got a key thing that's coming up is uh, on June 19th, we've got our Boulder camp. It's uh, 10 uh, CUs, continuing education units for American coaches, USAT coaches. Oh, really? And we've got, that's cool. Yep. And we've got Chrissy and Rinny doing a couple of talks in the evening. Uh, for the people that attend, and it's a week-long training camp in Boulder. So we've got a couple slots for that. The other thing is, first week of August, we're doing a tour of Colorado. Uh, all the details for that are on the website. I think that August camp is going to be really special. We're going to take people all over the Rockies, and they get a chance to check things out. How long is that camp? Uh, that's a week-long camp. And, so both both camps are a week-long. And, and many slots available in both? Or? Uh, actually, we just have a couple spots available on the Boulder camp, and we've got five left on the uh, so on, on the, the August camp. Though. Yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of ability, um, obviously on Epic Camp we have sort of a, a standard, but in terms of ability-wise for your camps, um, who should be applying? The the Boulder camps are appropriate for anybody. Uh, you know, all different all different levels. We we get a wide range on that camp. The uh, Tour Colorado camp, I, th- I think you know uh, you know somebody that's uh, mid pack. Uh, half Ironman or mid-pack Ironman uh, fit right in. Uh, the main thing we offer moderate options every day, so you don't need a you don't need to flog yourself. And we also split it up into different groups, and we put a couple coaches with each group. So we've got you know 
fast, medium, and uh, you know, friendly. And that's so people get to go their own speed. Friendly, um, friendly and, and Johnny, yeah. our friendly group is really friendly. It's not, it's not like not like Epic Camp friendly, where you know it's friendly unless I'm feeling good, and then I'm going to crush it. Um, it's, um, it's, it's for those people listening. You know, if you are looking for great camps, these camps are really good. Not just because you get out there and train, but it's, it's more the education you get from having great coaches around and the shared experiences you're having with other athletes. So if you are looking to take your training to that next step and you're kind of looking for that boost you know we can't recommend camps like the endurance corner camps enough you know they really are pretty great especially if you've got people like Chrissy and Rennie talking exactly yeah. and, uh, and any parenting tips for those who don't know, <laughs> here we go uh, yeah, yeah, yeah actually I do and, and I get this a lot because I, I, I coach a lot of athletes that have kids um, I, I would say the key thing is uh, in that three month period after uh, you have after the kid comes to try and avoid any ambitious race goals. So open up your schedule post uh, birth would be a key thing. The other thing that I think is important is have a deal with your spouse that if they ask you to do something, you'll do it and, and put the family and, and give them the option to you know call on you as and when required. I think that's that's something that's worked really well for Monica and me. So what you know if if she's if everything's under control that's great I can kind of go ahead and do my training but if it, but if I need to make some changes sh- I trust her to let me know and then I make those changes to support the family. Great. Mm-hmm. I'll be interested to see how that evolves over the next couple of years when you catch up to where I'm at now. Interesting times once I get to two three wait wait till they get to 14 mate that's when it all changes (laughs) (laughs) well my competition's hoping that i get overwhelmed (laughs) awesome well we know you're busy so you got things to crack on and we're going to finish off the show so thanks again for coming on as always we should actually get gordo back on like i know he's out of touch with our world Mm. you're interested to see how much he actually keeps in contact but he's such a good thinker isn't he Mm. yeah so you know um jumbo sponsor if you're looking to get any tri gear, check oh, out yeah. trisports.com. Use the promo code IMTALK and you get yourself a 10% discount. Plus, we get a little affiliate fee, so you're helping yourself out with a discount and you're also helping us helping us out do what we do. So check it out, trisports.com. They've got all those little items that you often can't get at your standard retailers, you know, all the different knickknacks that you attach to your bike. They've got bikes, they've got wheels, they've got trainers, anything to do with triathlon, these guys have got it. Check it out, trisports.com. Use the promo code IMTALK. It's one of those places where you can go and just bulk order everything you need at one time, Absolutely. isn't it? Absolutely. The good thing is it's good price, so you're getting a good deal, and, and we get deal as well. And the cool thing is they, they reinvest quite a bit into the sport as well. You know, the sponsor races they sponsor athletes and so a lot of these days with the online retailers take, just, take, 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 take and go the lowest possible price but these guys are in it for the long haul and invest back into athletes and uh, in our sports so check it out there's some pretty cool bike trainers on here you mm. some of the bike trainers I've got absolutely you can drop some money on a bike trainer can't you yeah but when you get 10% off using the I'm Talk oh, promo code go. it's not so bad <laughs> there you go nice, nice wrap around there John okay uh, sponsors Oh, and our patron Name a patron Don. Mark the Missile Scudamore George Mr Money Banks And Keith the Ice Lord Manning Okay Jumbo So uh, If you want to support the show Go www.imtalk.me It's all pretty obvious on our website And you're going to draw to win a free trip to Kona But you also get a gift depending on the level of contribution you give So you can do that And, and ultimately it just really helps John and I do what we do And we really appreciate that John sponsors Athlinks.com Social networking for endurance athletes And extreme endurance Your lactic buffer And the patrons yes. Okay Jumbo uh, What's your goss? What's my goss? I'm tapered I'm ready to go 
ready to get picked up in the, that airport and ready to check out the road course. I'm looking forward to re-familiarising myself with the road course because you look at the profile and you think it's quite bumpy and it is quite bumpy and then when you drive the course you're going it's pretty hilly but when I remember riding the course it didn't seem too bad to me. I mean you've done it twice and I know that this is over 10 years ago. I remember thinking it's, it's, it wasn't that bad but I didn't go as fast as I thought it would. Yeah it's a kind of course where you've really got, this is going to sound a bit silly, you've got to ride the course yeah. and you've got to ride it really smartly because if you don't you're not going to have a fast time so you've got to Ride those hills I think I really rode strategically. Four fifty-five. Yeah, and I, first time I when when I did, I only rode five hours. I was struggled on the bike, but this time I've got a clear understanding of how to hit it. What, so what? what if, okay, so tell. I know we will talk about this a lot more, but two months from out from when you do it, uh, <laughs> the key thing is on this course is you can't piss around on the hills. And but the main thing is is you've got to keep the foot down when you're on the gentle downhills and when you're on the you know there's lots of bits where yeah. you're kind of twisting through little towns and it's just a bit swervy and in those times especially when you've got a power meter you can realize how much time you're losing so the key is to keep the foot down the whole way through and not be sort of losing yourself and then on the few moments that there are downhills where you can freewheel I'll be making sure that I do try to regroup just get that heart rate down a little bit but it is going to be a case of keeping the accelerator planted most of the way through and not getting sidetracked when you're going through the towns and the twists and turns. And and as always, being a bit strategic about your effort. You know, there's going to be a lot of people out on that course and a lot of people going fast, so it will be a good strategic day. But can't take your foot off the pedal. I think people go over there just thinking it's going to happen. and it's. Uh, but if strategically, what, good, good swim, good bike, good run would be what? Well, if it all goes, you know, you know the, the perfect race for me would be at about 8 hours 45, but that's like the perfect one, yeah. the perfect bike, the perfect run. So, look, I, I'm sort of t- hoping that I'll be in that sort of 450 to 455 region. Yep. Um, under 450, I'll be wrapped. Over 455, I'll be pretty pissed off. Yep. So that's sort of, you know, in the low 450s is what I'm hoping for. But it's going to be more riding to power and riding smartly rather than uh, rather than targeting any time. But it, when you're going for a time, you do have to still keep a bit of an eye on time. And sometimes you just have to go, screw it, I'm rolling the dice, I'm going to see what happens. I'm going to roll the dice, mm. see what happens. What movies do well, you, you watch what, on the plane, long haul? What, just, what do you normally do? Well, I'll be sleeping one flight, working a bit, and then probably just catch maybe one or two movies. Yeah. About it, you get your movies, get some. Do you still? I was thinking about I was, I was flying back from Taipei the other day, yesterday actually. Mm. And uh, nowadays, I can't eat as much as I used Our to. bodies are temples these days, <laughs> yeah. And I remember back in the days when I tried to get four meals, on oh, plane. absolutely. And nowadays, I'm happy with one. Mm. So, do you still try to double up on the meal? No, no, no. Remember back when we started the show, it was like, Can you it get was four a meals? competition, <laughs> man? And that's God, we've got we've grown old, haven't we? <laughs> we have grown old. The, the belly does not recline like it used to it does not handle that food and that's we had the guy the heart guy on last week here last week and that's one of the things you know you can you can treat your body like shit when you're younger but it's gonna probably come back and kick you later on so if we can start educating people and maybe if we go back and retract all those things we said on those earlier yeah, don't shows listen, don't listen to us in early shows don't listen to that you're stupid if you eat because I remember when back on the plane says, all I'm thinking is how can I get more food yeah moving, you know? moving seat halfway through the service <laughs> <laughs> and, oh excuse me yeah. more meals left over and then on long haul they'd always have the, the pit in the middle where there'd be more food sit on one side yeah yeah, yeah. oh yeah. yeah you just go grab that all night long yeah 
chaps. That's yeah. high quality food. And I wouldn't put on weight. Oh, not that I'm putting on weight nowadays, but jeepers, right. John. Mm. There we go. Anyway, well, so next week, guys. So next week we're going into, uh, you know, a kind of Kona-like experience. We're kind of giving you updates every day. It may be a day later and the first day it comes out, uh, but we're getting right through to the rope race day and we'll give you great rope coverage. And, uh, and keep, keep an eye on our Facebook page. We'll try to post uh, loads of stuff all the way through the week up there. And if you're over in rope, you will see us. We have got uh, we've got some really cool camp gear. And one other cool thing that Challenge are doing for, for all us Kiwi athletes is we've got Team New Zealand t-shirts as well. Oh, cool. So it's sort of going to be a little bit like a Kona experience. It's really nice of them to do that. If you're going over there, and obviously you're not part of it, we, we'll know if, you, if you're not on the camp, but if you want to come up and say hi, we'll be at all the... Um, we will be at the. We're going to be doing the run on the Friday night from Hippelstein through. It's female, to, was it? Was it everyone? No, no, that's all of us. Oh, okay. It's actually Thursday night from Hippelstein through to Rote. About an eleven k run. We'll also be at the um, pasta party type thing, and uh, just pop us a note, and we'll, we'll let you know where we're at. It'll be cool to get some pictures from listeners and catch up with you guys on the day. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. Really looking forward to it. Mm. Yeah, and Rote's, it's like I've done it twice, guys. Rote's amazing, but to kind of be a spectator. Oh, well, You're gonna have specific instructions on on. Tips. I want to get to that place where. What's the place where everyone goes? Uh Solderberg Hill. Yeah, I want to go there. I'm not sure if I'll be mm. able to, but your your responsibilities might uh, <laughs> might not allow for that. <laughs> we'll make it work. Do and sort it out. Okay, John, let's wrap it up. I'm Russ. I'm Indo. Train hard. Train smart. Kick hard.